I'm author and critic David Agronoff. I'm a horror and science fiction author, critic, and researcher. In this podcast, I wanted to provide in-depth interviews and panel discussions with everyone from New York Times bestselling authors to researchers, musicians, and anyone I find interesting. Welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. Welcome to the 100th episode of Postcards from a Dying World. And because it's episode 100, I said, I don't give a shit if it's relevant or not. I'm going to talk about a miniseries from 1983 and 1984. And so I've gathered a panel of nerds to talk about V, the miniseries, and V, the final battle. Before we get into it, just a couple notes. This is the first episode with my new intro. Uh, which was made by my friend Langhorn J. Tweed. Uh, so uh, you don't have to worry about my outdated former intro. I finally got rid of it. Uh, <laughs> but the new one's here. And then I just want to really quickly, because it's my podcast and I can do it, promote my new book, Nightmare City, co-written with Anthony Trevino. And um, this is The Wire. If Philip K. Dick and Clive Barker were on the writing staff was the idea. So just got to throw that out there uh, because it's out there and it needs love. Anywho, I'm going to introduce my panel now. Uh, this episode, I really went for, I was going to get as many people as I could to talk about this because I think a lot of us have a very special relationship to V the Final Battle. So I'm going to go through, our panel are going to introduce themselves, who they are and their relationship to V, the miniseries, and V, the final battle. We are not going to talk about the TV series and the reboot as much as possible. We will touch on them briefly, but they suck balls, and we are not <laughs> going to really get into it. Um, so starting with Juan, Juan, this is your, Juan San Miguel is, this is your first time on Postcards from the Dying, Postcards from a Dying World. You're familiar with our panelists, some you're friends with, and plus, I know you've listened to our Star Wars and Star Trek recaps. But uh, Juan, tell the folks who you are, what you do, and what your relationship to V is. Okay. My name's Juan San Miguel. I've been an active fan since V came out. Uh, I've been to many world cons, and I've been active. I've done everything practically active. I've worked on conventions. I've published fanzines. I've also written for other people's fanzines and been on other people's podcasts like Seth. Uh, my relationship to V, I remember watching the first episode of the miniseries, but for some reason I didn't finish it. And I don't know why. I I, I, I was intrigued, but I, I, I missed the scene where they there's the big reveal. And I, But I definitely did watch, and then as I, I said before we recorded, recorded uh, V, the final battle, and kept re-watching the action sequences. And I did watch uh, the series as it came out, and also, I, I, if we do touch on it, I will, I will be the defender of the 2009 series because I liked it. <laughs> that is a harsh take, but uh, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the other thing that we will talk a little bit about are the books. 
because um, oh and i did read the books a few of the books yeah i've got i've got my collection here so we will talk a little bit about that at some point um seth heasley welcome hey. back to postcards from a dying world pleasure as always david uh, yeah. yeah, I'm Seth Heasley. I've I've been on a few times with David. David's been on my podcast as well. Uh, Hugo's there where I'm reading through the Hugo winners. Uh, I also have a podcast, Take Me to Your Reader, where we talk about adapted science fiction. And uh, yeah, I grew up with these, I think it was fourth grade, probably when the original one came out, you know, back in the heyday of television miniseries, where that was kind of, it was one of the prestige ways to bring a book lots of times, uh, like the winds of war and North and South and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, my dad was a huge nerd. And, uh, and so when we found out V was going to be airing, of course, we were, we were all over it and super excited for when the sequel came a year later, which is, I don't know, kind of shocking to me, um, that we had to wait that long for it. But, um, but yeah, it was something I, like, I was thinking about that today. It's shocking that they got the sequel made in a year. Like, yeah. Yeah. Maybe it shows a little bit, but um, <laughs> I can also say that like a buddy of mine, uh, we, we were at the age where, you know, we wanted to play V basically. So he wanted to be Michael Ironsides. Um, of course, um, I had to be Mark Singer, even though the height didn't work. It was the opposite. Um, but like he made himself an Uzi out of Legos. <laughs> uh, that's a Mac 10, sir. That... It was a Mac 10. That's right. It's a little smaller than an Uzi. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, and I, of course, made one of the V ray guns out of Tinker Toys. And that was pretty sweet. So, yeah. Oh, we, we will, we will talk about V toys endlessly at, mm -hmm. at some point in this. Um, but yeah. And Seth, um, you're, uh, I think there's an argument to be made that you could do V on Take Me to Your Reader, but we'll get to that in a little okay, bit. Okay. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> Uh, I have an interesting argument for that. Uh, I think I can predict it. Yeah. Returning uh, as a member of my Jedi Council and a part of my Star Trek recaps is Isa Diao. Isa, tell the folks who you are and your relationship to V. Oh, man. I, I am a uh, science fiction fan. Uh, took a detour as a musician. Is a, I'm currently a software engineer who wants to be a writer. So that that's pretty much sums it up, you know, take your pick. Um, I loved V. V was, uh, you know, when the, the, the original miniseries, and we're, I'm just going to talk about that first. We'll get into the other stuff later, but that was like, um, there wasn't a lot of science fiction on TV and it just watching, I hadn't watched it again. I hadn't watched it in a very long time. I might've watched it before the 2009 series. I can't remember, but uh watching it now brought me back and i'm so excited to talk about it so we'll just we'll just leave it at that for now <laughs> now last on our introductions a member also of, of my jedi council but uh is the person i've talked about v with the most because <laughs> we've talked about it for almost three decades together um, and we grew up uh, very uh, close to each other. So we have some of the similar, um, and we're right at the age group where we were playing V uh, to Seth, uh, uh, but in different cities. We uh, Ryan and I didn't become friends till our late teens, uh, but uh, Ryan Downey, tell the folks who you are and your relationship to V. Uh, I am uh, Ryan Downey, old friend of Mr. Agonoff's and uh, a writer and journalist. And one of the great things I was thinking about in, you know, thinking about this conversation we'd be having today is I believe uh, even more so than Star Wars, that V was my introduction to sort of the expanded universe that could pop up around a property 
and the uh, organized communities of fans right because you know certainly prior to that i loved star wars and had star wars action figures and, and all of that but um v was this cultural event that everyone was kind of paying attention to when it aired and uh you know like seth i believe i was in third or fourth grade when it came out i remember watching it with my mom and brother and it being like a, a must-see tv kind of event and kids talking about it at school and so on but the reason why I say it was kind of my introduction to this sort of expanded feeling of fandom is that after the two miniseries had concluded, and then there was the ill-fated season of the weekly show, it really became sort of relegated to obscurity in a sense. It was almost kind of a, you know, it was, it was sort of a rogue fandom amongst fandoms as I went through middle school and high school. And then by the time, you know, was in late teens, early twenties, you know, other than Dave, I didn't really know anyone who had this like fascination for it. And as an elementary And I think it's one of the things we bonded on initially was was being V fans. For sure. And as an elementary school kid and middle school kid, I bought all of the novels, um, you know, which I'm sure we'll, like Dave said, we'll touch upon, but there was not only the adaptation of the series, but there was, East Coast Crisis, which told it from the New York point of view. And then there were all these different books, Florida Experiment, you know, uh, that uh, Alien Swordsman, Swordsmaster, what was it? Uh, you yeah. know, there were all these like supporting materials. There was the DC comic, which was also one of my first sort of early wrestling with like what's canon, what isn't canon, you know, and, and having head canon without knowing what head canon was, that there was a name for it yet, and retcons and all that sort of stuff that there there weren't really phrases to describe them yet, but all that stuff was was happening in V. And also, you know, knowing that there were there were these sort of uh almost toys and almost action figure lines, but really we had the doll, uh, which was expensive, and there were some weapons, but it never was really supported like a lot of other franchises in that way so it's also bears the distinction of being the first and possibly only unofficial fan club i've ever been part of for anything so in even metallica middle school i was (laughs) always in the official metallica fan club so going through middle school and, and high school i was a member of a unofficial v fan club which i was trying to remember before we jumped on how i discovered it my best guess would be maybe the classified section of like Starlog, but I really don't know how I found it, but it was just some dude and he made, you know, laminated membership cards and there was a zine. I want to say maybe the guy was in Michigan, eh? right. but, um, but yeah, it was really, it holds a really special place. I'm sure we'll, we'll all get into what makes the property itself great and all of that. But for me personally, it, it's very nostalgic and holds a very special place because it was that introduction to like, here's here's uh, people bonding together over their love of something that most people have forgotten or don't care about, something that never quite blew up in a way that could support itself with, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't Trek, right? It was there wasn't a lot of like you know visitor uniforms out there to wear to cons and that sort of thing. And of course, as we've all gotten older and our generation is more sort of dominating stuff that's being made. You know, now you do go to Comic-Con and you see people walking around in visitor uniforms and 
you know, it's it's still out there. And obviously there's been the attempts at the reboots and all that. But anyway, that, that's probably my favorite thing about it is, you know, yeah, having like a real deal fanzine, being in an unofficial fan club, you know, being sad when the DC comic was canceled, being sad when the weekly series was canceled, being sad when the books weren't being published anymore. And, and then early internet days of following along on the internet, you know, various attempts at revivals and, and reboots and such. So, yeah. Right. Well, um, uh, my dogs are about to fight right when I was about to give my V story. So uh, I will apologize ahead of time if that happens. Um, so my relationship with V, I watched the miniseries when it aired um, uh, and taped it on Betamax, knowing that uh it was science fiction but not knowing if i was gonna like it and i went ahead and taped it and i i paused out all the commercials and so through my childhood i had v and v the final battle on um betamax and so i watched it incessantly i knew it very well um i sent away for the i was a part of that same v fan club and i definitely found it in in the classified section of starlog so I'm positive that's where you got it. And it I initially found yeah. that guy because he was advertising that he was selling visitor technical manuals. And they were, they, they were put together with brads, just like screenplays. And they were and they were like Xerox copies that this guy had made his own technical manuals for the motherships, the shuttlecrafts, the um the weapons all of it. And I sent away, I, it's how I learned how to get a money order for the first time in my life, uh, to send, um, a money order to, to get this, uh, in fourth grade. Um, I, this was my V came out when I was in third grade. It was the same month that return of the Jedi came out, by the way, it was early in the month. And so it was my last month, third grade when this happened. And so V was very formative for me. And I, I'm sure Ryan, I don't know. I'm sure Ryan and I have talked about this before. Sorry, dogs. Um, but uh, V is where I first learned about the concept of resistance. I don't know if you feel that way too, Ryan. Um, but uh, I, I definitely, sorry, guys. Well, now, now, that you, now that you mentioned it, yes, I think so. I think it was. Yeah, and so the very concept of resistance fighting and all that and like fighting authority and doing all that, that's all things that um, that I was first introduced to with V, even more so that there was a rebellion in Star Wars, but I didn't really think about it. But one of the, but the fact of the matter that these were ordinary people that became resistance fighters, and we'll talk about the bookends of the opening scene of, of V the miniseries and how it ends. And, um, but you know, if you take the characters of Julie Parrish and, and Mike Donovan and, and, and their journey and their arcs is something that was way above my head as a kid, but is really amazing looking back on it. And we'll get into, uh, I'm going to get into a little bit of the history of where, where this all started, but my relationship with it was, yes, I, I sent away for those things. I had the toys. I grew up in Bloomington, Indiana, which is an hour south of where uh, Downey grew up in Greenwood, Indiana. And I had to, like, one of the things was that happened in my childhood was that all my friends, my mother took us all in our family station wagon 
and took a collection of kids to drive up to the Toys R Us in Greenwood to get the toys because they weren't available in my hometown. And a lot of my friends, my friend Brent Glasgow, when I said I was doing something about V, he said one of his biggest memories of his childhood was my mother taking six kids from different families up to Greenwood to get V toys. And one of the things that, um, that we got were visitor rifles. And you could pull off the front of the rifle and take the stock off the back and it became one of the laser pistols. And so it was both and it had like four parts and you put it together and only two of us had enough money to get the V rifle. And I was one of them. So that was a hot toy. It was a hot toy if you had that. So, and then they had the, the V doll that had a little uh, button in the back that would make the tongue come out. Now, I'm going to out Downey here on something. In 1999, one of my favorite memories is Downey buying a visitor punching bag on eBay. <laughs> and how he and I geeked out about this and all of our friends laughed at us because of how excited we were that he had won the bid on the visitor punching bag. I don't know what <laughs> turned out with that, right? I don't know what happened to that, but I can also tell you that the visitor punching bag followed by a visitor action figure or, or doll, really, I would say, I would call those. The, that punching bag was the first thing I ever purchased on eBay. <laughs> like, found, knew, found out what eBay was, went to it, signed up for an account. Every, like, that was my first ever eBay purchase in life was that visitor punching bag. Well, and I know about, I remembered this because I, on, on my, I did a search for V on the journals that I've kept over the years. And I wrote a whole journal entry in 99 about Ryan and I getting made fun of by our friends. For That's how, amazing. How excited we were about the V punching bag. So we were punching. I mean, I feel like I'm about to jump in and make fun of you guys right now. Yeah. <laughs> one, one, one might say we were we were made into punching bags ourselves over it. Exactly. Uh, although I got a question. Was this official merchandise or did somebody figure out how to put a an image? It was official, of, official, it was official merchandise. merchandise, which was the okay. only reason that it was like exciting, right? Because the, again, it gets back to that scarcity. There were so few official products. And this was just like some kind of inflatable. I mean, we're calling it a punching bag, but it was really like an inflatable toy that you were supposed to punch. And you'd have to be like a child to be able to punch. Right. This right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I didn't remember this until last night when I searched through my journal and I found. I, I remember getting the action, the doll, because I still have it. And I have a, a second one that I bought at some point over the years, but I'd forgotten about the punching bag that you just brought it up. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, anyway, so, for, so let's get into where V came from and then we'll do, I, I'm going to talk for a little bit. I'm sorry, guys. And then you'll, uh, we'll, we'll, but jump in what, if you feel the need to, but let's talk about Kenneth Johnson because Kenneth, this was Kenneth Johnson's creation and Kenneth Johnson is kind of lost to history, but he's a very important person in seventies television. Um, and he was a person that had a lot of power in television because he was one of the main writers on the Six Million Dollar Man, which, you know, most people nowadays, like, so what, you know, but the Six Million Dollar Man was appointment television, science fiction in the 70s. It was a very popular show. Um, and he was given the job. Generated a popular spinoff, which is not easy to do. 
And who was the guy that was put in charge of that popular spinoff? Kenneth Johnson. And he was the show creator of The Bionic Woman. And he made The Bionic Woman almost as popular as Six Million Dollar Man, which, like Ryan said, is not an easy thing to do, right? But probably his greatest achievement in TV series was creating the Incredible Hulk series with um, Bill Bixby um, playing uh, David Banner on um, weekly TV. And um, I'm sure everybody here, we've all watched the, the Hulk, right? Like, oh, yeah. yeah, the Hulk, and we can talk about it now and maybe people would laugh about it or whatever, but the Incredible Hulk was excellent television for its time. It was formulaic and whatever, but for its time, it was really good. And considering what he was working with, and Lou Ferrigno playing the Hulk, which was interesting. Um, it was really good. And coming off of the success of that, he had a lot of um, he had a lot of power in uh, TV. And a lot of the reason why he had power in TV was things that he didn't get a lot of credit for, which was that he was doing a lot of script doctoring. And he was well known for coming in and consulting on shows and fixing shows that were having problems. And I, I have no idea what he did because script consultants usually go um, in secret, right? Like there's some famous ones, like everyone knows that Quentin Tarantino did the last draft of Crimson Tide, for example. And you can kind of tell with like the scene with, there's certain scenes that you can tell Tarantino wrote in Crimson Tide. But a lot of times when the script doctoring happens, no one knows. And he had just had a string of script doctoring jobs and NBC was like, well, what do you want? You know, we want you to do something for us. And at the time, miniseries were very popular. You had Shogun, you had, um, I, I'm brain farting on a lot of the names, but there was a lot of really popular miniseries. Lonesome Dove, Roots. Yep. yep. And so having appointment TV miniseries that, that were over a couple nights, was really, really going to bring in money for, for your network. So he was asked to develop a TV miniseries. And being a lefty and not happy about the Reagan administration and feeling the, the creep of the religious right, um, Kenneth Johnson wanted to do a, a faithful adaptation of the 1935 Sinclair Lewis novel, It Can't Happen Here. Now, this is really important and where a lot of people are going to look, look, I didn't read It Can't Happen Here until 2018. And the funny thing about the 80 years that the Sinclair Lewis novel has been out. Now, remember, Kenneth Johnson's like, I'm reacting to the Reagan administration. Well, then, you know, there's an uptick of It Can't Happen Here during Nixon. And there's an uptake of the book during George W. Bush. And I read it because people were saying this book in 1935 predict Donald Trump, predicted Donald Trump. And one of the things about it can't happen here. It was written in 19 before the 1936 election. And Sinclair Lewis wrote it as a warning to people that might consider voting for the governor of Louisiana, Huey Long, who was a super reactionary right wing candidate. And he was going up against FDR. And so he wrote It Can't Happen Here as this warning of like, we could become fascists. Now, what's really interesting, if you read It Can't Happen Here now, it's like 
an alternate history novel now, even though it was written as speculative fiction at the time. And um, now I'm not going to get too much more into it. I've already talked more about it. Can't happen here than I should probably on a V podcast. However, that's what Kenneth Johnson wanted to do. He wanted to adapt. It can't happen here. And NBC was like, yeah, dude, you're the sci-fi guy, right? And then a lot of his friends told him like, listen, um, a lot of Americans aren't going to want to hear this. You should try to, if you do it with aliens and ray guns and stuff, people aren't going to listen more. Um, they're going to take that, that, that pill down a little bit better. And then he started to like that idea. And then he saw that it would be more commercial to make a science fiction show than to actually adapt. It can't happen here. Now, I, that, another self-plug, but um, last year I wrote uh, about a 10,000 word article on my blog called Trump in the High Castle, Philip K. Dick's classic novel, Post-Truth America. Um, and in that novel or in that article, I talk about how Man in the High Castle, The Plot Against America by Philip Roth, and It Can't Happen Here, um, really comment on the Trump era of like where truth doesn't matter. And I do actually make references to V in that article, um, but most of it I took out. Most are there for people who are in the know, <laughs> right? Um, but I do want to recommend that article for if you want to hear me go on about it can't happen here a little bit more. Although I think Man in the High Castle is the one that does the post-truth thing the best. And that's not just me being a Philip K. Dickhead, but anyways, that's all I got on um, it can't happen here. Has anyone else read it? Um, I'm not, I'm expecting that to be true. Yeah, um, it's not, there was a, a, in 2018, it did make it back on the bestseller list because of that article in the New Yorker that said this novel predicted Trump. Um, it is a little dated. Uh, I think it's worth reading, especially because it is what, and that's why I said, um, take me to your reader. You could potentially, because that was his intention was to, mm -hmm. to adapt. It can't happen here. I did pick it up back when it was on the bestseller list. So I've, I've read a little bit of it, but like you said, it, it's a little dated. I had a hard time getting into it, but it's, it's on the list. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can understand that. So, um, so Kenneth Johnson, you know, wanted to, to do this. So his idea was to, to mirror Nazi fascism with um, what's going on and to, to basically say it can happen here in this time. That was the intention from the beginning. And then once you get into the aliens and those other things, like that's one of the reasons why I think V the miniseries holds up a little bit better than V the final battle because V the final battle just wants to be a science fiction show. And V the miniseries, Kenneth Johnson is trying to make a point, right? And the point is kind of lost in V the final battle. And I love V the final battle and we'll talk about it. And then fully by the TV series, you know, it, it, it's all out of there. So now what I'd like to talk about is everyone's reaction to rewatching it, uh, or, and I don't know if everyone rewatched it just now or the most recent time that you rewatched it or whatever, uh, starting with Downey, like, how do you feel about it in this day and age? Well, you know, you mentioned it being the, uh, 
also kind of a, a first introduction for both of us to the concept of resistance. And I will broaden that even a little further and say that it was the first time that I really was cognizant of of science fiction as historical allegory. Now, watching, you know, original Trek and syndication prior to that, you know, I'm, I'm sure I had some sense of, you know, when they're beating you over the head with like, this is a civil rights episode and so on. But V was really the first time that I, that it clicked for me where I was like, oh, people set stories in these fantastical realities to comment on what's, you know, something that's happened in reality. So that was, that was the first time that I, that it really all clicked for me. And obviously that's something that going forward, you know, it's been such a huge part of storytelling in general. And I think, um, I haven't read, uh, it can't happen here, but based on my familiarity with it and works like it, I think V very much lives in that canon, uh, where, it is it is evergreen i mean of course it's dated by its effects budget and you know tropes and fashions and so on of the era in which it was made uh but having said that i mean the fact that you know two of the groups of people that are villainized by our uh seemingly benevolent new overlords are scientists and journalists I mean, you know, here we are, <laughs> 2023. Uh, so, and I yeah. had the same experience during the Bush years of watching it and being like, "Holy shit!" Like they were promoting, or they they were talking about things we're talking about now. And then again, even closer when we had like scientists being villainized, like Dr. Fauci, you know, for example, great example. Yeah. And yeah. when you think about, you know, Mark Singer's character you know when you think about julie when you think about you know your male and female lead from the show i mean this this was an ensemble cast but when you think about your uh your hero and heroine i mean imagine trying to even pitch that right now that the here the action hero handsome muscle guy is going to be a journalist and yeah <laughs> his uh female counterpart is going to be a scientist i mean it it's uh it's pretty amazing in that sense uh, when you reflect back on it. I do want to say before we move too far off of, uh, you know, the show's creator, since you mentioned the <laughs> $6 million man and the bionic woman, I just want to say, because I, I think it's awesome and I feel like this is a panel of people that will appreciate it, not to get us into a tangent, but the bionic woman actually was the first appearance of the fictitious country of Valverde which is the pretend South American Mando. commando yeah. invented by uh, Stephen E. D. Souza, who wrote on those shows. And uh, yeah, there's an apartment building that's still there in the valley somewhere. Great deep was, cut dowdy. That was the Valverde embassy in an episode. And yeah, and for people listening who don't know, this this was a, a country that was invented for as a stand-in anytime that you wanted to have a... Uh, you know, communist South American dictatorship without offending any actual communist South American dictatorship <laughs> and uh, most widely known as the country in commando, but also it's used in Die Hard 2. 
Uh, D'Souza believes that Predator takes place there, although there's like conflicting stuff about that. Uh, it's shown up as recently as like NCIS, but it all started in, with the Bionic Woman. Which, so we could we could say that maybe that country exists in the V universe. That's where I'm going with this. <laughs> right. Um, Isa, uh, how did you feel rewatching this? Oh, man. I loved it. I mean, like the uh, the let's again splitting the final battle off from the original miniseries. Just talking about the original miniseries here, it really brought me back to being a kid and watching it for the first time and loving it. Um, I think there are two things that just have to be talked about that are sort of uh, the meta of V at the time. One is just World War II. Like you forget. I mean, we're all about the same age ish. And, and, you know, when we were kids, World War II had essentially just happened. And I, I, I don't, don't feel, don't be mad at me, but I did the math. And V, World War II compared to V is about us now compared to the first Nirvana album, <laughs> right? And so it's, uh, it's just, it's unbelievable how much World War II permeated everything in, in the early 80s. I mean, it had literally just happened, right? And so... The, you know, I, it was, you guys were saying it was your introduction to resistance. And I, I feel like I'd seen a million other things about, uh, about World War II resistance and, you know, uh, having Jewish family and hearing stories and, and stuff. I, it didn't, that part of it didn't seem new to me. I, I felt like it was like a World War II movie, but with aliens, you know, like I, I think it was so, you know, I mean, a lot of the characters were Jewish in the show. And there were like, you know, oh, we're going to talk about Abraham in a bit. Oh, believe me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But fantastic. Love it. Like, almost like character the that's like, just in case you don't get it, audience. Here's <laughs> yeah, what it was not subtle. Ne- you know, never again. It was not subtle at all. Um, and it was fantastic. And the other thing is storytelling of, of that time period was so interesting. Like it has that like. I don't know what it's called. There's probably like an academic term for it, but like I, I always think of it as like the uh, disaster movie format, where uh, you know, like Airport or Towering Inferno or Poseidon Adventure or whatever, where you get like the the backstory of all these characters, and then it all kind of comes together. You know, it's like uh, it's like the storytelling is like you know, this is Bob, this is his normal life, and this is how his family is being affected by this thing. This is Jane, this is her normal life, and this is how her family is affected, and then all those people sort of come together and become the main characters. That was like a very, very common form of storytelling in the seventies and eighties. And you don't really see that much anymore. And so that was the other thing that really, uh, that really brought me back to like that time period. But the, the storytelling um, on the miniseries is next level. It is. It oh, is it's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. It amazing. It, it doesn't give you, it doesn't give you too much. It really trusts the audience. Like it'll show you something then you're like jumping in time forward to like another point. And it doesn't, you know, there, I think there's one spot where it's like two days later or something, but usually it just flows out naturally. And they manage to cover all these great points. It also sets up all these fantastic science fiction things where it just doesn't really do much, but it sets the table for stuff that some of it never happened. But like, uh, you know, they they allude to the, the visitors having other enemies in other places, like other alien races or whatever. Um, it kind of builds out the big bigger universe in a really nice way without having to like. I so I haven't read the books, so I don't know. There might be all this stuff might be stuff in the books that I don't know about. But um, and then before going too far into other stuff, just really quickly, I want to say that 
I'm realizing that I was kind of a strange kid and I was nerdy in a, a pretty different way than, than how you guys have talked about so far. I never played with like toys or action figures. I liked gadgets. Like I would go to Radio Shack and I would buy like, uh, you know, any gadget they had. That was like my idea of a toy. I never bought like action figures or anything like that. Um, and the one thing that I remember doing that could be considered uh, playing with V was I had a microphone and a couple like voice modulator things from Radio Shack and I could do the V voice, <laughs> like have the, nice. the echo and stuff. And that was my, uh, that was, that was what I did as a kid. So. Some, somehow you could figure out how to do that at Radio Shack on a kid's allowance and they couldn't figure out how to do it on the weekly series because it was too expensive. <laughs> uh seth watching it now hold hold on let me just finish with one thing i'm sorry to cut you off but uh so my memories of the original series which i hadn't watched in a very long time were that i loved the original miniseries and my memories of the final battle was that i thought the star child was stupid that was really all i remembered Uh, and i remembered her being called the star child which they don't actually say in the final battle so that must be from the tv show but that without those were my memories just like and michael ironsides of course but but it was pretty much just like, uh, yeah, V was great. Star Child was stupid. That was that was my uh, my summation. <laughs> nice. Uh, I'll just jump in since David stepped away. But uh, like you said, uh, Isa, about like the things that I remembered about V, I, I remembered moments really, and like I remember the 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 rat or the gerbil eating moment. That that was like the indelible image of V. And then the other thing that I remembered, and I didn't even remember that it was from the final battle, is the birth scene. Um, and we'll, we'll get to that. I'm sure when we talk to the final battle, but really like all the underlying message, you know, the, the kind of anti-fascist stuff way over my head when I was a kid, I, I do not remember understanding that at all. Even, even the super on the nose stuff about, about the Holocaust and, and other things. I was, I think I was just too young to, and maybe too naive to, to understand most of that. I, I um, do, uh, Seth, I will point out that for me, like mm-hmm. I was the same way, but I, I literally had my mom on the couch behind me. Like while I was watching the first time on my beanbag behind me saying, well, this is about Nazism, obviously. Right. This is mm-hmm. inspired by World War II. And so I was lucky to have my mom explain it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I just remember it kind of washing over me and just, you know, enjoying the cool uh, you know, the laser rifles that didn't make a, like that chirpy sound that you get in, in Star Wars have then that whoosh sound, you know, I just thought that was really cool. Um, so yeah, as an adult picking up more on that, I thought, wow, this, the, the like you said, the, uh, the kind of plotting of it is really, really good. And the, the, the analogy is, is so well woven in there that I, th- I think, you know, we were talking about, you're probably absolutely right about, here we can get this message across without offending anybody who voted for Reagan um, because we're telling it with, with aliens instead of making it a, you know, super on the nose political thing. Right. And that was definitely what, what Kenneth Johnson was trying to do with it. And, um, and, you know, succeeded in the sense that um, he, uh, uh, you know, got it across the finish line and it became a big hit and um, almost, you know, beyond his ability to control it with V, the final battle. Juan, what was your experience rewatching V and comparing it to when you saw it when you were younger? You weren't as young uh, as us, but yeah, I I think I saw it, and if I'm if I'm looking at the dates and well, somehow I as I said, I've missed the first miniseries. I saw it on the rerun just before they did 
either V the final battle or V the series. I think they reran both the miniseries before the show, the weekly show came on. Uh, there were no big surprises when I rewatched it. I mean, I think I sometimes when I rewatch old things, I'm looking at like production values, um, not necessarily storing telly things. Um, so I, there, there are a couple of things that I'm kind of amazed that I, I, I saw in the, um, in the rewatch. It's like, oh god, that's there or that's there. Um, the only thing storytelling wise that I thought was creepy and didn't make any sense is why is Brian walking around the street kind of easing up to to uh robin which it it just seems what what's he doing with this young teenage human girl i mean it seems like this before he was kind of like was he always planned to like you know try to find a human girl to do diana's medical experiments but besides that um nothing new it was kind of, i think they did the best of what they could do at that time uh the the big thing i think looking back on it when i think about it was uh, we didn't have any really good, exciting science fiction on television. I think the last show was Buck Rogers, which left in 1980 or 81. And Next Generation wouldn't come on until 87. And unless you were a Doctor Who fan, and the bad thing about that is being in America, you never knew when you were going to get the new episodes from a given year. It'd be, the, it'd be a big surprise of when your PBS station finally hoed it up. So... One, uh, I, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I have to have to interject that this was the age of like all this bad science fiction shows on TV that lasted for like one season. I think it was like Manimal and the Misfits of Science, Auto and, Man, uh, all really just not very good science fiction. So let's oh, just, I, let's not let's not underplay how important Manimal and Misfits of Science were. <laughs> right. Well, yeah, and science fiction was in a real low period on TV at, at this time, for sure. I guess this is the biggest, I, I and I know Manimal got- I think it was like a golden age of science fiction on TV. I, I remember it that way, personally. I don't know, I think it was a draft, but maybe it's because, you they know- None of those shows survived. Yeah, none well, of those sure. shows survived. But they were, I, they were trying. I only heard about, I, Manimal came out recently. I only heard about Manimal recently. I was listening to a another podcast, which, had, which does Trivial Pursuit, and that was an answer to a question, which I knew, what it was the person who had to answer it on the podcast did not know know it. i guess it's but i think there was a like a really big push that the other shows like galactica had a big push buck rogers had a big push and i think this had a really big push i think the other shows you mentioned probably had slightly but not as big as a push and they certainly didn't attract a fandom to get them to at least i mean to, to get them to where they were to to build up a fandom although sadly you know that didn't last too long well and the reason why this tv series failed and a lot of the tv series failed is because they were always more expensive at the time than they could do which is why battlestar galactica they're like hey um you have the same budget as the dukes of hazard so figure out how to put them on earth so we can film in southern california and then we got galactica 1980 which is one of the worst atrocities of all time. Then, yeah, then, then we then we get <laughs> then we then we get them like speeding down the four hundred five on futuristic motorcycles. Right, exactly, and uh, so mm. and V suffered from the same thing, and then eventually on V the TV series, basically they kept killing off all the characters, so it was just Diana versus Lydia in cat suits doing gladiator battles by the end, and. It got so bad, like... And as a fan of 80s hair metal vixens, you know, say what you will about the weekly series, but shout out to Lydia. 
Yeah. As just the the so guys looks I, like I she's in poison. The blonde did, foil to the brunette. I did Diana, a quick uh I did a quick the Google hair. and that year was also the year of Auto Man, which was the guy that turned into the car. Oh yeah. Um, and Whiz Kids, which was so there were there was a lot of like short-lived science fiction TV I don't shows. remember was... either of those. I remember Manimal being a thing. I loved Buck Rogers. I, I will interject here to recommend a, there's a podcast called Continuum Drag. Uh, I've had a guest on my podcast. I've been on theirs. They go through like all those old shows. Auto Man. I think Manimal is on the list, but they haven't gotten to it. Misfits of Science was on there. Uh, I think they're doing like Tech War now. So if uh, if you're nostalgic wow. for those things, they've got you covered. Although I thought Misfits of Science was later because for some reason it I remember it came on before Miami Vice. Yeah, it probably yeah. was. It had, it had Courtney Cox. Courtney Cox, it. yeah. Probably, it was probably a little later. All right. So... <laughs> I think I was thinking of WizKids and mixed it up with uh, Misfits of Science. So let's, let's get into um, some more details about the miniseries first. Well, let, we'll talk about all of it. I think um, I want to talk about the characters because the characters are so important. And um, so we can go back and forth with both. But what overall, what we all know about for those who maybe are for some reason listening to this commentary without having seen it, if you haven't figured out if you made it this far and you haven't seen it, pause, go watch V and V the final battle. However, I still have the DVDs. So that's how I was able to watch it. Um, but uh, the difference between V the miniseries and V the final battle was that V was such a, a rating success that um, they ended up replaying it later in the summer, um, which a lot of people don't remember, but they ended up replaying it later in the summer and they immediately, they went into production on V the Final Battle before V was even out because there was so much buzz about it before it came because they did a really smart marketing campaign where they went around LA and put up, you know, visitors are our friends posters without any explanation. Um, a, a little trivia too, I want to give everybody the visitor symbol. Well, it looks like a swastika. It was supposed to serve the purpose of a swastika. Um, is supposed to be in the visitor's language is supposed to mean Sirius, which is the star that they that their planet comes from. And it's winter in North America. So you can see Sirius every night if you look out there. And it kind of looks like an S for yeah. Sirius. Yeah. 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 And uh so just some little nuggets there, but V once V was such a big success, they gave Kenneth Johnson the go-ahead to start developing V the final battle, but he was still doing post-production. So he needed to, de and even though he wrote all V by himself, which is one of the reasons why it's so good, because he was very passionate and wrote it all by himself. Um, and what's funny, I learned looking up stuff about this is that his first treatment and first script, he didn't even name the characters. He would say like cameraman guy and like, it it it, just, it didn't even have character names. Scientist number one, you know, like he was in such a hurry to get the first draft of the script done that he just flew through it like that. And so with the final battle, he did not have the time to go and write it by himself. So they hired a team of writers and slowly but surely they pushed Kenneth Johnson out because he they wanted to make it more. They wanted to go more in the science fiction direction, the network the studio which was warner brothers tv and they wanted to push it 
more to science fiction and Kenneth Johnson wanted to push it back towards the allegory. And, and before you go further down this road, I'm, su I'm super excited to get on here and talk about it because I don't know that much about the fighting and the creative control and all of that. I wasn't aware of that until I was an adult. And I remember as a kid, knowing that the weekly series was noticeably inferior in terms of being lower budget and, you know, the voices are gone and the, you know, going down the list of, of just ways that it was noticeable then that it was different. But I don't remember as a kid feeling there. I know you said you mentioned that you hated the star child. I, I don't remember seeing any or feeling any real distinction between the original miniseries and the final battle or feeling that they were tonally different or that, creative leadership has changed and I, I didn't wasn't really cognizant of that stuff as a kid and it's only now in very recent history where I can even sort of see the like oh these are you know the same lens that I would look through anything else you know the, the way that I would you tell the difference between Zack Snyder and Joss Whedon you know but at the time it, it was very seamless like I didn't I, didn't feel I, I like, remember oh, this is the final battle had had way more just silly action. Like it was way less high minded science fiction and way more silly action. It was like which as a kid I liked right. better. I think I liked that better as a kid. Yeah, and I yeah. was excited <laughs> at the end of the weekly series that the leader was coming. Whereas now I can see like oh what, yeah why that was really a bad idea to try to <laughs> make a yeah, bigger. Yeah. Although I I, I do want to say one thing I just read before yesterday I have. I had a previous housemate who left me all of his star logs and uh, Kenneth Johnson did an that's interview. A, that's, in a, about, that's a cool thing to leave behind. Uh, he was trying to not carry much stuff. He moved to California, but anyway, uh, one of the things he, uh, he, so he did an interview in star log. I believe it was one Oh eight where he just explained around that time. It was 1986. He did an interview and he explained that one of the things he tried to tell Moke, Let's not do TV series or another miniseries. Let me do one two-hour show every month. And Tartikoff couldn't understand why and understand the concept. So that was the big thing about that. And then there were all these other small changes that they made in V, the final battle, which made them go off on, left that project. Seth? Yeah, I, I think, you know, what you said about the the network kind of wanting it to be more science fiction, I think I think a lot of science fiction snobs these days would say, no, they, they wanted it to be more sci-fi, um, where the series itself, the first series is definitely classic science fiction using the kind of the lens of, of future and technology to look at our present or our past, um, whereas the final yeah, kind of rubbing off more, childhood's end. A yeah, little a little bit. bit. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I do want to criticize, I do have to criticize Johnson on this. And unless somebody can give me some information that I'm wrong, somebody in Starlog pointed out that the visitors wanting to steal our water and the fact that they breathe our air kind of makes it sound kind of weird. Couldn't they make their own water? No, you know, no, no, no. Look, there, there are certain things that you need to suspend belief on. for. OK, me. but the thing that is, is to say that it was <laughs> saying that it was well done science fiction and they're stealing our water, which shouldn't. Water should not be that uncommon, unless they come from Tatooine, and even then, or or Arrakis. I, no, I no, would, no, I but spaceballs are not realistic with the air. Yeah. <laughs> What'd you but say? No, no, but but scientifically, uh, we weren't, we didn't know that there was abundant water in other places uh, in the eighties. So that, that's not as crazy. But I'd be much more concerned with like, why are they all dressed as humans when they're just on their ship chilling? AC Crispin explained that in the novelization. Those skin suits are really hard to put on. 
<laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair and enough. They well, why, the, uh, why do they have the uh, serious? Um, yeah, but when, but when you have the, some like shock the, troops or whatever who are technicians that they're not even planning on sending to the surface, who why put them exactly? There? <laughs> don't That's don't fair. ask too many questions about that stuff, right? Right. It's like, why does everyone keep getting captured and escape over and over? Like, how many times can the same people be captured? And like, give me a break, but don't don't ask these questions. There's a, a Star Trek Year Four comic I just read where Kirk has a phaser, uh, one of the little phasers in his boot, and McCoy said, "Finally, after all the times we've been put in a cell, you got one of them, right?" <laughs> and I thought of that with me and how many times they got captured. Um, but yeah, Stephen's terrible at uh, at security, as Diana is not exactly. at all shy to point out. Right, right. Um, yeah, and and th this also brings up an interesting thing, and I'm I'm curious to hear from everybody more thoughts on this in general, and more from you, Dave, about the the story of what happened. I definitely grew up and spent, I would say, even most of my twenties, maybe even early thirties, with the belief that, like, you know, creator driven. You know, you get one person's vision, good or bad, let them execute the thing is, you know, corporate meddling and, you know, movies by committee and and uh, albums by committee and whatever. Bad, bad, bad. Like put this one genius in charge and let them do their thing. I've come around more into middle age to, you know, look at something like Rogue One and go, I think that was saved by committee. I think it's great that they brought in another director to do these reshoots. And, and we wouldn't have gotten off. Andor without you know, that. And, and, maybe, and maybe Rogue One, you know, I, I don't mean to bring up like a partisan example to, to debate it, but just that there are examples of properties out there where it's like, you know, maybe it's not so black and white that it's like, here's the dumb suits that don't understand how things work. And here's the creative genius that's being saddled. You know, I, I mean, would would his uh, follow-up miniseries have been better than Final Battle? Would it have been worse? Well, we can talk about that when we get to talking about his... Right, so and that, so, so that's just, I don't know, just something kind of up for discussion where it's like, I feel I, like I we're all sort of, you know, fandom is predisposed to think like, you know, for, Zack Snyder being a recent example where it's like, yeah, the Zack Snyder's Justice League, I think is demonstrably better than the theatrical cut. And yet the argument that this was like, some work of art that was just sitting on a shelf waiting to be unleashed. It's like, no, like he was given like what, 20 more million dollars to go and finish it. And there were reshoots and there were different effects. And, you know, so it's like, but, but again, my, my point being that like, maybe it's, maybe it's just not always that simple, you know, and maybe it is not always that simple. I don't want to get off topic here, but the Joss Whedon cut of justice league is a much better movie. <laughs> the, than the, than the four Snyder's hour justice league. Like, is like 14 hours long and is not going to be a movie right so you can't really compare the two so that's not fair but whatever i i i'm not a justice league fan i shouldn't i shouldn't uh i don't have a strong opinion there neither am i but, but i'm just saying yeah. the, the, but the I, I think there's there's always been a balance between uh the creative genius of one person and the committee right and yeah. I, I think if you look at music most of the truly best bands um are are two geniuses working together you know um, where you kind of like, if two geniuses agree on something, then it's fantastic. And that that play off of each other seems to be what works really well. Um, you know, obviously there's a million counterexamples. But, but there's also, you know, producers and A&R people and, 
You know, I think I yeah, grew up no, believing sure. that all those so people I think were inherently takes, bad and a, they were meddling. And then now it's like you kind of grow up and you go, well, I, I don't know. You know, maybe this A&R guy telling them they, they needed to write three more songs was uh, was essential, yeah. you know, to what we ended up with and we love. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if, if Thriller if Thriller didn't have Billie Jean and Beat It, which got added, uh, you know, when Quincy Jones said you need to write two more songs that are add two more songs, that was, uh, you know. That that it all it takes it takes a lot of people to put together a, an album or a or a TV show. Now, Viva Final Battle is a little bit cheesier, and there's some things that I wish they hadn't done. I I what, going back and watching it, there's parts where I laughed out loud at some of the cheesiness a lot more than Viva Miniseries is one that I would be more willing to. I can tell you that even in 1983 and 84, I had the experience of both my parents sat and watched Viva Miniseries with me. And both of them left the room eventually during Be the Final Battle. And, That's amazing. And, yeah. and, and, and so here's the thing. Um, but at the same time, there's things I really like about Be the Final Battle that Kenneth Johnson was unwilling to do. Um, as far as like, you know, I can't look back. I've, I loved Be the Final Battle when I was a kid. So I'm not going to, in retrospect, say... I mean, there's times where the music sounded like Buck Rogers, and I hate to talk shit on the music since the guy went on to write the theme song for Deep Space Nine. But um, the 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 music is super cheesy, like some of the love scenes, like the fact that the guy says, will you marry me? And you know he's going to die 10 minutes later. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I will say one quick thing about the music. There was no distinct tunes in the original miniseries, but in... I, and I, I know what you're talking about. The love scenes had really generic music, but I thought the action... Saxophone. Music, yeah, the action <laughs> scenes had a distinct tune, and that carried over into the series. The so, theme song for V, the final battle with the drums, is yeah, very cool. Yeah. Right. And what's kind of weird is the first miniseries was done by Joe Harnell, who was from The Incredible Hulk and developed that classic lonely man theme so i'm kind of surprised that there's no real classic riffs that come out of the first miniseries or you know there's no like distinctive tune that you can hum to or think about whereas the the final battle did have you know distinctive you know background music I, yeah, I, I, look, talking about music i think it's worth mentioning how hilarious it was that the star wars theme turns up a couple times no um, once once the, mar the marching twice. Band, yeah it's twice. The marching band plays it when the visitors are landing, and then someone whistles it uh, at some point. I forget which scene it is, but it, it does come in a second time. I noticed it on this uh, previous watching today, or yesterday. And they had um, to pay for it. <laughs> yeah, pro Probably. Yeah. Someone's like oh no, it's in the credits. They had to acknowledge it in the credits. Yeah. Well, look, the, the final battle, for me, the thing that, that just if I could do one thing and take one thing out of it, it's the star child saving the day at the end. If you could just, and just the star child aging like super fast conveniently so she can be a teenager for the TV series. And just so she could say, Prete Nama. And I, and, and that's literally the only reason why. And so she'd have the ability to go grab the thing. That's the only reason why they have her aging. Right. Yeah. And, and, um, and does yes, she, I could, does she and take yes, it from I, science fiction into fantasy? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's why yeah. I didn't like. It. Well, well, yeah. two things. One, I in that same article I told you guys about the original ending for 
the final battle, according to Johnson, was that Martin was going to take over Diana's mothership and get it away from Earth before it exploded. And Julian Donovan, and the thing is, Diana had escaped with Elizabeth and went to another mothership. So what would have happened is that Donovan and Julie would have gone to the other mothership where Diana and Elizabeth were at and land and get in. And that would be the end of the final battle and would be a big cliffhanger. And he thought that would be more effective than what was. And the other thing is somebody made a joke in Starlog saying that compared what Elizabeth did to what Luke Skywalker did in a new hope. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't turn off your targeting computer, but um, <laughs> like, and, and, uh, Here's the thing, uh, and by the way, I want to say that I remembered what the visitor word for peace was before I watched it last night. So I knew Prey Nama was, was, nice. was the visitor word for peace before yesterday. I, I thought it was Hakuna Matata for some reason. But... <laughs> yeah. See, cool. I remember all the Rylan from The Last Starfighter, but I did not remember this from V. Well, hey, I, that's Last Starfighter 3 deep cut too. Um David, I think the the final battle it added a few elements that weren't in the original series, and some of them worked, and some of them didn't work. One was they added a lot of horror element, like both the uh, the conversion stuff was very like uh, uh, you know, I mean, the horror movies of the time were right in there, like that that fit very well. Um, you know, it had like the, Grant apparently was very method in filming that, and she put herself through uh, a lot of shit. To film that, by the way, I, I, I read about. <laughs> I, I believe it. it's quite quite the performance there. Um, I loved how they had those little buttons. They were like, "Go up to level one," and they they light up some buttons, and then you know, level two, you get some smoke. Level three, you get this like ring laser that goes around her. Level four, she gets like a, fa- a laser pointer to her face. <laughs> it was amazing, you know. Um, I so remember, the horror, by the way, being very confused as a kid as to how conversion therapy was effective. Yeah. totally like i understand but so, so added, i didn't understand like you know how it would change how it can well it makes you i'm already yes. left-handed the very yeah, yeah me too uh, the very disturbing thing of, of suddenly i'm trying to use my left hand <laughs> totally but so um, they did they added those horror elements and they also added the body horror elements of like robin being pregnant that was pretty intense right. um and that worked both of those worked pretty well i thought the uh, the political intrigue among the visitors didn't really work very well. No, like, trying we find- to turn Diana into basically the lady from Dynasty was like, it, yeah, that exactly. got really. Well, I did enjoy uh, as an adult. I, for, I forget the act- I forget the action's name, but it was nice Ursa to see from Superman uh, too. Uh, I yeah, right, beat me exactly. to that. Yeah, Ursa. <laughs> I think that was V was definitely my introduction to the phrase fifth column. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Well, and I want to say something. I, that was one thing that I realized when rewatching it. The fifth column was kind of a breakthrough because I think, unfortunately, most alien races, even the ones on Trek, were usually pretty, you know, mono, monolithic. And the fact that there were a couple of people who disagreed. And I really liked the fifth column. I think that was kind of cool. Like, gee, not everybody agrees with our crazy maniac leader and they're trying to do something about it, even though it seems particularly in some of the some parts of the miniseries are taking too long. And Martin uh, was so popular that after they killed him off in the TV series, they gave him a twin brother for no reason. And and then, uh, but yeah, Martin, I always loved Martin as a character when I was a kid. And I always thought the fifth column was great. And what you're seeing uh, too on the baby thing, 
Baby thing is also a problem with because like again that that breaks down the science fiction like why was one baby like partially human and then one was a complete like alien and then well no 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 the alien the green baby had human eyes that's so it true was... mm-hmm. yeah yeah so they, they tried actually... to, to mix it up and that baby how, well, how did they conceive that... with a human skin suit but there's a lot of questions. Well, actually, so that was addressed in the East Coast crisis, actually. Yeah, it was. Was it? Wow. I will say that birth scene just scarred me when I was a kid. I had nightmares for weeks. (laughs) I look at it now and I'm like, okay, that's a hand puppet. Um, But but like the the tongue from from Elizabeth. Mm. And by the way, how do you name a kid who's half lizard Elizabeth? It was Robin's favorite name. I never thought of that. Robin didn't even get to name her. Her dad, her dad suggested it. At least she never had to go to school and take all the ribbing. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Lizzie the lizard. Yeah. Um, Well, look, and 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 the thing about the star child and and the baby, like one of the uh, one bit of trivia that I think everyone will probably find pretty funny is that remember this was Warner Brothers TV and it was filmed on the Warner Brothers TV lot. Apparently, when ER was filming at one point, George Clooney borrowed the alien visitor baby for a prank he pulled on the on the on the ER set. And he switched out the baby that they were using for like a scene with the alien baby and one of the co-stars is like <laughs> this thing. So um, which is really funny. Um, but let's talk about the characters a little bit when we get into it. I want to talk about. Okay, I have four favorite characters on V. Um, obviously, Ham Tyler is going to be up there. We'll I was talk- going to say Ham and Chris better be two of them. <laughs> well, Ham is. Uh, Chris is great. Um, I always love seeing way, Chris in things now because I still, anytime he would show up in anything later, he's, he's always just the Chris of Ham and Chris. Sorry. A funny thing about that character, too, is his name was Faber in the script, but... Um, they ended up changing it because uh, Michael Ironside kept calling him Farber <laughs> like on set. So they changed it. Um, but Ham Tyler, and we'll go into each of these. Ham Tyler, Caleb, uh, under underrated character, Abraham and Ruby. Obviously, these are my four favorite characters. Um, the idea of turning a, a Jewish kid into the brown shirt with Daniel was a really bold move, but mm-hmm. of course it put it into the Jewish family. And the dynamic between Abraham, Ruby, the parents, that is one of the juiciest bits of drama that you've got going in the miniseries, and it's all great. And Abraham rules. I looked up the actor. He didn't really do much of anything else. It was like hugely consequential, but, and um, you know... And his whole, no, you don't. And then like doing, being the one that does the V for victory. Abraham rules. He's a great character. Does anybody else want to say anything about Abraham? Well, we're on it. I, I loved him. I mean, I, that was the, the whole, you know, like, like I said before, it was so, it was not subtle, but it was just like, you know, we got to fight the Nazis, you know, <laughs> like you have to love that. Yeah. And keep in mind the scene where he talks about when, 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 his son doesn't want to hide the Maxwell family in his pool house. And he tells him about his mother and that, you know, who cares that it's on the nose that that's what you need to do. Yeah, that's great. 
And speaking to somebody who just is about to release a Holocaust novel in a couple months, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> there's no reason to mince words when you're talking about the Holocaust, in my opinion. Right. And, you know, his scene with Ruby, where Ruby's trying to calm him down. And I think that scene means much more when you see the arc that Ruby takes. When you go back and rewatch and you know where Ruby's at in the beginning, telling Abraham, like, down it's not going to be so bad you're you're over worrying things you know it's all all really interesting stuff and then you have um you know that the journey that ruby takes as becoming like an important part of the resistance blowing up ships you know um and winning winning over the cold heart of ham tyler which you know so now we gotta talk about ham tyler <laughs> well no let's do him last let's talk about caleb Caleb to me, sorry on the dog. The dog loves Caleb too. Um, the, the thing about Caleb as a character is Caleb is a character that didn't really move the needle for me when I was a kid. But on watching this one, his son, who's the scientist doctor who gives his life in the very first act of the resistance and his meltdown when he finds out that his son was dead and his troublemaking son still alive, and the arc that they have through the final battle, where he comes to went to be won over by him, um, and then he, and he's a hilarious resistance fighter. Remember, he's also the one that comes up with the plan to doom Daniel, um, and he's right there in all the battles. Caleb, awesome character. I, I, I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in on Caleb, but oh, I, I just feel like this is a great time to talk about just how how uh you know you gotta look at it in its time but just how like the racial stereotypes in v are hilarious but are actually progressive for their for their time period <laughs> um it was just like you know you got you've got like the 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 street jive talking black guy you've got the uh the mexican gardener guy like you know it was i, I forget everyone's name but it was just like his it was, name was really actually funny. Sanchez, which is the hardest. Yeah. No, Santos. I think it's Santos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They I think call him, calls the him Sanchez name. in one scene or something. It could be that. I thought it was Santos, but one one of the things San, I will San, Sancho Gomez, I think. Right. Was yeah. Sancho. I, I think I think so, but they definitely people. A couple of people called him by the wrong name a few times. I think. <laughs> well, and uh, the, on anyway, the nose of him hiding the scientist in the back of his truck, like the Mexican guy doing yeah. that like right well and it was like it, he'd been it was you know he'd been sneaking mexicans across the american border that was like he's like i've had some experience at this you know although, so although there was one, a lot of, um okay oh, no, you finish your no the one thing i noticed in in between v and v to final battle they kind of toned elias down the jive talking you know smart yeah you know smart <laughs> they kind of i wonder where that came from you know where what where that transition ha why that transition yeah, he, he happened. had a couple he had a couple like I'm just a lowly hood monologues in the in the first one that were kind of hilarious. Um, but no, I mean, just like that between that and the sexism, you know, again, it was it was pretty good for its time. But it's just really funny looking back on it now, like the uh, the visitor who uh, the woman who has to give Donovan her uh, uniform to escape just has to strip down, you know. It's <laughs> like, come on, man. Um, you know, and like, I mean, whatever, we could go on and on, Gives but it just didn't have to be column, am I right? 
Well, what yeah, I was right. embarrassed about that was I didn't realize that they that was a different actress in I thought it was the same actress who was uh Martin's assistant, but it turns out that that was Lorraine, not Barbara. And oh, in the novelization they said that Barbara was actually the visitor who disguised themselves as Donovan who tried to rescue Julie. At least that, that that's uh, what I remember was in the novelization. Hmm. Um by the way, I I wanted to say that one I just realized uh, and I'd forgotten about this. The bookmark that's in my copy of the V novelization that I've had since I was a kid is the actual Betamax sticker <laughs> for that was up that and you see the two missing stickers that's where I labeled my Betamax that had V the miniseries on it. And that's how long I've had this copy. This was, late for, this was pretty late for Betamax. I feel like VHS would have taken over. We that. had Betamax way to the end. And the Betamax, <laughs> when we got the VHS, the Betamax migrated to my bedroom. And I held out on the Betamax with all my stuff that I had taped on Betamax for much long enough that um, Enter Sandman was a video out that I watched on the same TV that my Betamax was hooked up to. Wow. So it, it's wow. my Betamax survived till 91 before it died. Long after they were, the tapes were not in the video stores anymore. Exactly. And I just had all my collections, including all my Headbangers Ball um, Betamax recorded from TV. But that's besides the point. Anyways, um, back to Caleb as a character. Um, it's just interesting to me because he's a character that I didn't think anything of when I watched it when I was younger. But Damn, watching it this last night, uh, you know, I realized, or this last like week, Caleb is awesome. He's a great character. And by the way, his last role was the judge in Liar Liar. And um, <laughs> I have a distinct memory of seeing Liar Liar, the Jim Carrey movie in the theater, and being the person that yelled in the theater, Caleb! <laughs> well, that actor was a job actor. I think you saw him in Don't shake your head like you've never done that to a B actor. <laughs> no, I, in fact, I just said I do it every time that I see Chris. <laughs> right. I want to say he's. I want to say he's in Total Recall. That uh, with Chris. Anyway. Yeah, with with him, Tyler again. Uh, re yeah. And um, and by the way, and and Seth beat me to it, but Sarah Douglas coming in and playing the 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 commander over Diana being um Ursa uh, General Zod's lady in uh Superman 2 was kind of a good sci-fi get for mm -hmm. V the final battle. But all right, we've talked about Caleb's we gotta talk about Ham Tyler. We gotta talk about this is this is the role that defined Michael Ironside for me. Um I don't think since Han Solo there was a cooler character of our childhood then Ham Tyler and his Mac 10 Israeli gun. Ham Tyler, and by the way, his best line of V the Final Battle, when they're trying to figure out who they're going to test the red dust, what human they're going to test it on. And he says, There's plenty, um, there's plenty of collaborators out there. How about your mother, Gooder? Uh <laughs> He's uh, the, I, I liken him to, you know, my favorite uh, hero of comic books just a couple of years later was Wolverine. And this was, of course, years before the movies made Wolverine like the, you know, Donovan of the X-Men. Uh, you know, just that side character, the you know, yeah, the Han Solo reluctant hero, 
gruff, uh, you know, makes makes fun of people who are goody goody, but ultimately does the right thing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. He was. Uh, yeah, he. I mean, he also just has v for sure zero f's to give, right? Like the thing that I like about him is he's out there killing visitors, almost looking bored while he's doing it. Like this, this just no big deal. Well, there's one scene where he's in a shootout and he just cracks a smile for a split second. Mm-hmm. That is um, the best acting Michael Ironside did in his entire career. Mm-hmm. Is in that scene because it says so much about Ham Tyler that he actually is enjoying himself <laughs> in that moment. And not to say that Michael Ironside isn't a bad actor, and he already had sci-fi experience, being that he was blowing up heads and scanners already <laughs> at this point. So um and uh which i first saw as a clip in terror in the isles that um horror movie documentary that was on hbo all the time and uh, i saw michael ironside blow up a head and i'm like ham tyler blew up someone's head uh with his mind (laughs) and uh but i think i had seen that scene before or whatever but anyways michael ironside just absolutely kills it as ham tyler in v um, what's, what's interesting is I think he got the most character development in the in the in the weekly series because they 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 actually developed his backstory a little bit. Yeah, well, and they did a little. Uh, AC Crispin did a little bit too in the novelization, and a lot of the science things that that and and Juan knows this because he read he's read them is that a lot of the science things um, AC Crispin tried to make you know work a little bit better like things like the fact that the skin suits were really hard to put on and off and that they couldn't they kind of had to live in them and and that kind of thing and she tried to powder they don't have enough talcum powder on their planet either right well and um yeah and so there's there's some interesting things with that um some things that i appreciated about it that we haven't necessarily talked about yet is that one of the cool things that goes on on v is that the resistance have meetings um and they debate what to do including the really intense abortion debate involving the star child which um i think would be hard to put on tv now but got on tv in 1984 so because it was final battle and um i love that the scenes and the scene particularly one of the best scenes in in v the final battle is when the um uh is when they're discussing the whole idea of well they might set off the nuke they might kill the planet we're talking about the fate of everything and um and that's where elias gets his arc right to go from right from, from the cheesy street thug type character to um to being the the um you know one of the the saviors of of the planet and then has that scene with Caleb. So that really works out. But anyways, I really like that they argue, they debate, they talk about things. And that's a real counterpoint to the, to the idea of fascism in the show. So I think it may be on the nose, but I think that that's what, I think that's what the, at least Kenneth Johnson, who kind of set that up in the first one, because that is something that carries over from the first one, you know, that. And they have a wide variety of views, you know, they're the people who are like the more extreme, like let's just fight there are the you know it, it's it's very realistic that people are going to have a lot of different views of me but, but actually this brings up a thought to me that i've always wondered and i don't know if any of you i didn't find i didn't i only did a little research and 
David, in your research, did they explain why they said it on the West Coast rather than the East Coast? The East Coast would make more sense since that's where the United States political power is. I mean, I know. Yeah, but uh, dude, I think it's pretty obvious why it's set in Los Angeles. It's a TV show and all the studios are in L.A. And I'm surprised it's not set in Burbank. Yeah, yeah, exactly. it was, right? <laughs> a lot of it. Well, the whole scene where the neighborhood, uh, Donovan's kid's neighborhood gets emptied out. And by the way, um, Donovan's ex-wife is, I think, the mom from Growing Pains. Um, uh, but I no, not- I don't think. No, I, I, I would have recognized that. I'm, I'm going to check that. I could be wrong about that, but I thought it was. And and that it was super familiar too, but where. When I was a kid, I never understood why why she's so upset at Donovan, right? <laughs> like, you know, and uh, and that whole thing makes more sense. But one of the things about that first debate that they have too, it that's really cool is you see them deciding to put on a resistance, and that's one of the best scenes in the miniseries when when the when they're like, "Hey, how are we going to do this?" and Julie becomes the reluctant leader, you know, and um. You know, and that, of course, sets up, you know, when we talk about this being next level storytelling, and it's definitely Kenneth Johnson's masterpiece, the next level storytelling that I didn't get anything of as a kid. Oh, and by the way, one of the characters that's super underrated is one of my favorite characters, because but he dies early, is Tony. Um, Donovan's camera, or, or yeah. Um, sound man. Yeah, his sound man. And like how well the storytelling when they introduce the two characters and some of it's bad exposition, but you know, like, Hey, this is just like Honduras when they're driving around <laughs> but, um, and getting shot at. But what that first scene does and the second scene where Donovan's just captivated by the resistance leader in El Salvador, who's going to stare down the helicopter with his pistol and, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't even think anything of the fact that we get to see Julie, you know, make the same decision. I get chills just talking about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I didn't even realize what was happening to me watching that as a kid and how, like, perfectly the setup and payoff is for writing. Because I, you know, everyone's going to get, especially Isa and Ryan are going to get really sick of me talking about my philosophy of writing very soon. Is it parallels uh, and reversals? Parallels and reversals. There you go, Seth. Yeah, I've never, I've never heard you say that before. That's weird. Yeah, uh, parallels and reversals, and V is all about the parallels and reversals from beginning to end. But that ultimate parallel and reversal, all in one, is Donovan watching the resistance leader in El Salvador. And seeing Julie make the same decision with Diana and staring down the gunship, even though she knows her pistol isn't going to do anything. And that's, of course, why Diana's like, circle around, you know, and uh, like why she's so upset. But, you know, that's powerful, powerful writing. Um, And as as cheesy as it may be, it's it's incredible storytelling. Just real quick, you were correct. That was Joanna Kearns, who was the mother on Growing Pain. So I was wrong. <laughs> uh, dude, I've watched V a few times. I know <laughs> that it was Joanna Kearns. But um, because every time I saw her on Growing Pains, I'm like, Sean Donovan's mom. Um, and uh, <laughs> but uh, anywho, um, so yeah, and that's 
Um, and one character that I really, really hated this time, um, by the way, we were talking about characters that we liked, character I hated this time was Father Andrew. Um, oh, like, I hated him last time. <laughs> I well, I actually, actually, in the same interview I've been telling you about Kenneth Johnson, his idea for that role was going to be a young hip priest, but he felt whoever took over wanted to go for the safe old Irish priest. Right. And the the idea that this that he's like hey like she's this universal symbol and i'm gonna take her i mean the whole his whole plan was bad and plus he took the wrong side of the abortion to pay too so like he he kind of like well i mean depending on how you feel about it but yeah i mean i think that was on character for a priest yeah it was on character (laughs) for the priest i'm not saying he took the wrong position for himself i'm just saying like i cringed hearing him talk about it the way just while robin was sitting there right although i don't know if there was a real i I question if there was a real abortion debate because they said well well they're they're going to do it but then they find out it's physically impossible to terminate the pregnancy so i'm wondering if that was just well they made the decision to do it they make earlier they have a straight up discussion about uh, the morality of abortion they kind of they kind of start and then they put it off and they're like, well, this is different because it's interplanetary or whatever, you know, but they definitely have the debate. Um, but is it, and, a, is, it yeah. is it a worth debate if then they find out it's physical, you know, they it's physically impossible. That's what I felt. I felt. I felt I guess the physically impossible gets into the. Uh, uh, you know. Whether or not the life of the mother is at risk. Right. Well, at that point, yeah. I just I just thought it was like straight up alien, you know, like we can't get this thing off of it without it killing him, kind of mm-hmm. whatever, you know. Right. Um, right. But you know, good, always, always good. <laughs> right. So, um, okay. Uh, anything else before we get into kind of some of the ancillary things? Like, I know there's a lot else you want to talk about. Let's go around and talk about um, our favorite things overall what you know of v the miniseries as an adult or you know as a kid what is your favorite things about v starting with seth i mean as an adult definitely i i i appreciated uh isa you were talking about kind of the the way it's progressive for its time we on on my podcast one of my guests uh coined the phrase vintage woke where where something <laughs> is now it's regressive from our point of view, but for the time it was progressive. Um, and you know, woke. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the fact that, you know, Julie is basically like a medical student, right? She's, she's not even a full-fledged doctor. And so she's kind of this, this young woman who's forced into this position of leadership and nobody really questions it until Ham Tyler comes along. Right. And the only reason he's questioning it is because she's gone through the conversion thing. Um, and so I, I thought that was really cool that, you know, that they were able to to show that and have her struggle a little bit, but not, you know, not make it super, super soapy. Um, that that was really cool. Cause I I remembered, well, I remembered having a huge crush on Julie, but um I also remember Donovan being the guy, right? And and so he is the beastmaster. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um and, and I did think it was funny that they they went from blowing up the pump station to coming back and having their own uh pump saxophone. <laughs> uh cue the smooth yeah, jazz music, yeah smooth exactly. jazz. um but yeah like i remember donovan was the was the leader and so i i thought it was cool watching it back this time that that no you know here in the 80s we we, we have a woman leading this and everybody's okay with it yeah and uh 
I, it was interesting watching it this time for me that there was even leaders that, 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 that they had to get Julie back after she was captured because she's our leader. And then I was thinking to myself, like, you know, it, it, that's kind of interesting because now I, I, I mean, the way I would write a resistance show is like you, your leader's gone. Now you got to get somebody new. You got to yeah. move forward. You got to do that thing. And so that was a little different. Um, are, watching are you planning, uh, David, are you planning to, to talk about things we didn't like? Um, you can do that with this too. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk okay. about the things we liked and didn't like. Yeah. One trope that I don't, I don't understand. I don't, I don't know why it keeps getting written in and maybe it is accurate, but the idea that somebody is going to risk all of humanity to rescue their family I don't, I don't believe it. I, I think like, what are you saving your family for? And that's where you have the, the other doctor um, or the other scientist um, who, you know, sells out the resistance in order to get his family to safety. And of course they double cross him. Um, but like, what are you saving your family for? Yeah. Um, and they if, forgave if Maxwell pretty. Yeah, they totally pretty. did. But, but then Donovan does the same thing in the final battle to get his son back. Yeah. Um, and at least he only sacrifices himself at that point, but they, they make the point, right? You're not only sacrificing yourself, you're sacrificing the fifth column um, as well as the rest of humanity. So, so yeah, I, I don't like that. And I, maybe you guys can tell me, am, am I wrong? Are people really that selfish and stupid? Probably. Well, I think it makes I think sense. It's with people are absolutely that selfish. <laughs> like, I think that has happened a million times. Yeah. Um, you know, like if you look at, uh, I mean, you know, occupied France seems like an obvious example mm. and with what we're talking about. You know, there are lots of people who would trade their temporary safety or, or a, a, a seeming safety, sure. you know, to, you know, so, they so yeah, I think, I think, I think that. from a film, from a film point of view, I think it just, they're trying to make it more relatable, you know, mm. like, it's like, I need to do this because to save my son, you know, like that makes it seem more visceral or Amazing. And that that leads me to I forgot to mention Donovan's mother, who's definitely the most loathsome character <laughs> in the whole show. Even after Christine Walsh has like comes around, um, her Donovan's mother that last scene with her where she's like I've been held hostage. But what's funny is I never this time I had a I really laughed hard at um, Donovan's stepfather like having. <laughs> when he leaves her and he's like you're pathetic bye i'm super drunk but bye I, i've had enough of you you crack me up so um seth anything else on the no no i i yield the floor okay ryan favorite and least favorite things well i i want to uh only because i i prepared mentally when you when you brought it up on your end i want to do favorite characters but i'll i'll, I'll make that as my also my time for uh, favorite things uh, in general, because I think we talked about that a little bit already anyways, in terms of the allegory and the resistance and all, and the, you know, the community of fandom that sprung up around it. And it did have a good mix of, uh, yeah, political intrigue and debates and uh, how organizations form and resistance and all of that and, uh, and action and, and, you know, cool weapons and cool uniforms. I mean, and that's one thing that I think V really nailed that is often overlooked in conversations about fascism. And of course, you know, Trumpism today, the aesthetics are so goofy and, and laughable that, uh, you know, maybe we're not, we've, we've lost that a little bit, but, uh, 
you know, whether it's Slayer, whether it's Marilyn Manson, Nazis looked cool. You know, that's right. the soundbite you want to pull from this episode and have me cancel. <laughs> but yes, uh, you know, imagery and, you know, goose stepping and the symbols and all, I mean, you know, propaganda and uh, imagery was such a huge part of that era of fascism sweeping into power. And I thought that the show really nailed that because they made the visitors look cool. The uniforms were cool. The shuttles were cool. The weapons were cool. The sunglasses. I mean, they had visors on. Like, you know, they just, they looked cool. They sounded cool. And that's a big part of the appeal of joining a lot of these um, communities, you know? And I think that that continues when you look at Proud Boys or Boogaloo Boys or some of these kind of neo-fascist alt-right militia groups right is they have like an aesthetic and that's something that i think uh you know grabs old of people and you know stormtroopers that's another thing too you know i mean the empire looks cool the the imperial uniforms are cool you know so i don't know that's an interesting thing that that uh, was one of my favorite things that i think the show really nailed is that uh to minimize the appeal even the visual appeal of fascism i think is to risk uh fully understanding how it takes root you know i think that's a big part of it but uh, favorite characters i'm gonna do ham and chris and i'm gonna give a shout out to mickey jones the actor who played chris in the in the yeah he's great uh as music fans um he was a music guy first he was a a session drummer he played drums for bob dylan in the 60s uh played with kenny rogers uh was actually a founding member of a band that kenny rogers was part of and then in addition to that yeah showing up in total recall i think his uh, his memorable face and as recently up until his passing i don't know if anyone in here is a fan of the show justified based on uh, the works of Elmore Leonard for all of us writerly types in here. But I'm a huge fan of Justified. And he had a great recurring role as kind of a Dixie Mafia uh, marijuana dealer with a little crew uh, named Hot Rod, who was often at odds with Raylan Givens, the right. uh, hero, anti-hero of, uh, of Justified. But yeah, just, a, just those two as a pair were very much the Han and Chewie of V. You know, he was the soft-spoken, big, burly guy. Very much the the Chewbacca there. And then he had uh, lots of great little line deliveries too, where he was just real subtle about his performance, but it was great. And I love when um, Tyler and Donovan are fighting, and he's the one that's like, "Let him duke it out." Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Exactly. He's got. He had that, like, yeah, that very much that uh, tough guy sort of, uh, you know, roadhouse code of ethics of uh you know wait i thought it was caleb who told him to fight they should let them fight it out oh you you might be right yeah yeah i think are they you, both you, did i think they were caleb, is this caleb erasure from you right now dave no no caleb erasure all the way to liar liar i am all for caleb so but uh my my, my other two characters quickly favorite characters and, and it was great because this was true in childhood as well and this gets back to the uh you know, the aforementioned uh, forward-thinking progressivism of the show uh, were Diana 
and Julie, you know, those, those were, uh, those were my favorite characters as a kid. And of course, you know, growing up a boy in the Midwest <laughs> and, you know, if you were playing Buck Rogers or you were playing star Wars, it was, you probably weren't going to be wanting, you know, playing princess Leia, but uh, as much as, as Leia was a progressive sort of, you know, forthright uh, hero. Yeah. You know, hero with, with agency and all of that sort of things. Um, yeah, for all the reasons that you guys just discussed, Julie, and then also Diana. She was very much a uh, a classic villain and a strong female character. And, a little uh, too strong in the final battle. <laughs> naturally, naturally, I had crushes on both of those characters in different ways for different reasons. But um, yeah, those were my those were my four favorites, and I think that those all of those characters represent kind of the diversity that was happening and i don't mean diversity in the woke sense so much as i mean in a character sense of all the different types of people that you had on both sides of this thing all right ryan downey the the other folks on this panel don't know this but i know this and i cannot believe that i didn't say willie the vegetarian alien the soft spot well, spot. not just because of Willie, but because who played Willie? Come on, you. Right. I mean, but that, but to, but to be a favorite character, I think would be a reach. All right. You know, but, I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to give him too much. Just for, I, I will, I will say that Freddy Krueger is a favorite character, and A Nightmare on Elm Street is my favorite horror film of all time. So he gets all of his due there. And for any uh, V super fans who are hopefully listening to this podcast, I will say that when I had the opportunity twenty years ago to do a set visit to Freddy versus Jason and spend the day with Robert England uh, interviewing him and shooting B-roll as he's in the makeup chair and having this whole dream day with, with Robert England. When I told him what a fan of V I was uh, and uh, that uh, <laughs> Willie, the vegetarian alien was an early influence on my lifelong vegetarianism. Uh, he was not only uh, sort of confused by that, but um almost apologetic very much very much very much not not happy about influencing someone's vegetarianism granted it was 20 years ago maybe he's changed and i've and i've had subsequent interviews with he's a great interview super nice guy but um he was not as flattered to hear how much i loved v let alone that willie was an influence on me being a vegetarian he was not very i I want i want to say something about willie and a really hilarious thing that i did and i want to see if everyone picks up on on why i did this but one of the reasons in my former journal entry is right around the time that I read V the Second Generation, and by the way, V the Second Generation is a sequel that pretends that the final battle didn't happen, much like mm-hmm. Superman Returns, only Superman 2 exists. And it was Superman Returns that gave Kenneth Johnson the idea, I can do a sequel that only keeps the final battle alive. Much like Terminator Dark Dark Fate, where only Terminator 1 and 2 exist. Exactly. And so this sequel has a lot of problems to it. One of which is that Willie still messes up English after 20 years on Earth, which is really ridiculous. But one of the most hilarious... Now, see if... I'm wondering if everyone picks up on this. But when I reviewed this, I said they missed an opportunity to make... Willie to do like a Willie side novel where he's like Lawrence of Arabia organizing the jihadists against the visitors. And now why would I say that Willie's the one that needs to do that? Does anyone remember? Yeah, because he was originally supposed to be sent to Arabia. And le- learned yeah. Arabic for oh, going that's there. Right. Yep. That's why he had problems with things. I forgot all about that little 
detail. So my nerd clearly, not a, clearly not truly a favorite character of mine. Yeah, and and listen, that was David's nerdy comment to <laughs> my in my review of the second generation was that Willie should have been organizing jihadists against the visitors. But second generation might be w- one of my first knowledge. I mean, when when did that come out? Like, um, I will tell less you. than ten years ago, if I recall correctly. It was uh 2008 yeah so i mean that seems still somewhat early for and i'm sure there's a bunch of other examples i'm just not thinking of i guess but when you had someone with legitimate claim of authorship over a franchise but also doing sort of this renegade kind of glorified fan fiction that presupposes you know that tosses out cherry picks bits and pieces of canon i mean i feel like that's something that happens i mean the latest halloween trilogy that that throws out all of the sequels even halloween 2 uh and sort of you know has a meta like diss on halloween 2 i mean that's just like a thing that's just so much more acceptable to do now but yeah. uh I don't right know. Although, it although, so easy. it's it so was easy superman to returns that inspired him to do that by the way so which superman returns was was what 2006 he also really pissed off in uh crispin's estate because he convinced tour that in anticipation of this release they re-released just the miniseries half of the v novelization tossed out the other half and they changed the byline to ac crispin and kenneth johnson even though he didn't write a word of the novel, he just wrote the, the original screenplay. And um, Ann Crispin was had already passed away and wasn't able to fight that fight. And Tor just kind of did it on their own. And, um, you know, as a part of promoting the upcoming release of the second generation. So there was some, some iffy stuff there. And Ann Crispin, for people who don't know, uh, wrote the first Star Trek novel to become a bestseller with uh, Yesterday's Sun, which is one of the best Star Trek tie-in novels. Uh, Seth's shaking his head. I bet he's read it. Um, and uh, but the uh, that's the one with Sto- Spock's kid, right? Yep. yep. And time travel shenanigans. And which is a sequel to a terrible episode and a great novel that takes a great or takes a terrible episode of the original series and makes it better by having this great sequel to it. And Anne Crispin, that was the only novel she had published before getting the job to do V. But and if I remember correctly, aren't there some contradictions with her adaptation of the final battle and what actually aired because she was working from like a script, an earlier script or something, right? Aren't there her final there... battle? Yes. And um, they were they concurrently were writing East Coast Crisis. Um, to the point where she had to get uh, Howard Weinstein, who was also a Star Trek author, to co-write East Coast Crisis with her because they outlined it together and then he wrote the first draft and then she wrote the second and third drafts of East Coast Crisis. And they, because it had to go concurrently with the with just the scripts of, of V, The Final Battle. So we'll talk more about the books in a minute. Anyways, um, <laughs> Issa, uh, next. Um, favorite and least favorite, favorite. things about V? Okay, so my my absolute favorite thing is just the reveals. And, and it it's so funny because I feel like since V, we've had so many stories that are very similar. 
um, uh, you know, uh, Independence Day and uh, Harry Turtledove wrote a popular series of novels, uh, The World at War, where lizard aliens invade us. And then it kind of goes on for a very long time. Those books um, started great. Yeah, ex- exactly. I was trying to politely say that with, and then it goes on for a very long time. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of similar themes, a lot of stuff that's just straight borrowed from V. Um, but I think like just the whole thing, Hey, aliens have shown up. Um, oh my God, they're lizard people. <laughs> they're here to steal our water. They're here to use humans as food. Like just that series of, of reveals is incredible. Like it really is really well done and it's set up pretty well and it pays off really well. Um, and it's just really impressive. And I, I think the story, I think everything about that first miniseries was just so well done. It really did a great job of painting the picture. Earlier we were talking about, you know, why Los Angeles? I think it did a good job. I mean, we know why Los Angeles, but it did a good job of implying that it was a worldwide thing and things were happening all over the world. Um, And the visitors were like uh, preventing communication and that sort of stuff. And that all, I think that they handled that as well as you can handle those things. Let let me just really quickly, let's go through really quickly what what Kenneth Johnson was balancing to tell this story. He had to introduce... All those reveals, he had yeah. to make the point about fascism. He had to introduce all those characters and he had to bring them all together to be fighting for the resistance in the end. Um, it's incredible writing. If you look at all the things, oh, and the fact that he got yeah. it done in basically three hours is incredible because now, um, and this is the thing that why I was so upset about the reboot is the thing that the reboot should have done and it would have been amazing to do is spend an entire season of tv watching a character go from being a doctor a cameraman uh, a, a mexican farmer uh, a hoodlum a factory worker to a resistance fire and that's why the v reboot to me is the single greatest misunderstanding of source material in the history of the 21st century entertainment period. They did not get it or understand it. And Juan, you will not convince me that it's a good show, no matter how hard you try. I I Uh, will not convince you it's a good show. I will explain why I liked it. (laughs) Okay. Um, But for me, that was... Okay, but hold on. So stuff stuff that I liked, right? I I love... No, no, it's fine. I loved all those reveals. I loved how... There's so much packed into such a short amount of time. Um, I, you know, my big complaint about the final battle, aside from the Star Child, was just that they had too many kind of like filler action scenes. Like, let's have him on a horse. You know, like it just was. Oh, I pretty much <laughs> didn't like any of the action scenes. Um, you know, and not just because it was. You know, standard TV action for the '80s was like you know one step above the Kirk two-handed punch or whatever, right? <laughs> um, so you're not expecting a lot, but it was it was it was pretty boring. There's a lot of like I'm gonna jump and kick someone with both feet kind of moves, you know. Um, so, but there, but if you dig past that, there was so much stuff. I mean, there's like this uh, this subplot about the the cop guy whose name I don't remember who dies. His his girlfriend, who he's now going to marry, so we know he was going to die. His girlfriend ha- is sleeping with Daniel to get information, and he's pissed about it, like she's cheating on him. You know, like that was such a that was such a uh, just like a stupid 
male thing to do you know what i mean like right i thought that was really uh you know that was it was a great situation and and fraught with drama but it was just like he's being a fucking idiot you know donovan definitely uh, went to the martial arts school of kirk fu for sure oh yeah absolutely absolutely um but yeah there were there were a lot of like really intense like situations that people were put in and it almost was so common in the series that it just you barely notice it was just happening all the time um you know it was just it was all just really well done on that note a prime example is there's almost no reason to watch the scene with donovan being chased by the fighter on the horse because it's just like oh god come on yeah and really the much more exciting and intense scene in that same part is ruby taking off her makeup in front of daniel and saying you were such a good boy what happened to you and that brown shirt that's one of the most incredible moments of be the final battle and that's one of the few moments of be the final battle that feels like the first miniseries you know, yeah, yeah, and is and also gets paid off very well when Ham Tyler breaks the the champagne bottle and says, "You're the punk that killed Ruby," right? It's just <laughs> great stuff. So I'm sorry, um, Isa, are you done with the? Yeah, that, that's that's all I got there. I got more, but we'll come back. <laughs> uh, Juan, uh, favorite and least favorite things of V the miniseries this time around? I guess I already mentioned my favorite thing, the idea of the fifth column, that the idea that not everybody's monolithic and not everybody is willing to go with a destructive program that's going to hurt people when it... But it's questionable whether you should do it or not. So I really, I mean, I liked Martin, Lorraine and Barbara and Oliver and the, and and to a certain extent, Willie, I mean, he eventually comes over and decides to be proactive in the resistance. So, so I, I like that concept. Uh, I think what Isa was talking about, and I don't, and I, I might've gotten distracted. I'm not sure if he was for it. I, I did kind of hated that whole thing about brad you know being you know all weird because you know of the thing it just and him trying to like be more macho than than ham it just seemed kind of dumb and redundant i don't even and it's still it's it's trying to be badass for badass sake and you got to out badass everybody in the area and that kind of that's a trope which drives me nuts so that's uh, the only thing I, I do have to defend the horse chase because I always kind of as a kid, I sometimes would ride my bike and I would think, yeah, I could do the horse chase, you know, and, you know, and my legs are in the same position. I'm in probably going as fast as that horse possibly. So, you know, I kind of defended that. What I hated was that they actually reused it in an episode of the television series and they didn't cut it right <laughs> because you could easily tell that they were just reusing footage from V the final battle because, hey, <laughs> We need something dramatic. Well, let's just reuse the horse chase scene in this episode because we could. They're going to be out in rural California, so they could be on horses. Now, they basically, you, reused it in funny, Hot Target as well. Yeah, it's funny that you should mention that because that was the first time when I realized that V the series was a piece of shit because I had watched the final battle so many times on Betamax. It didn't fool me at all. I'm like, that's just the same scene. Although that was a later episode. That was a post-Christmas episode where they cut, got rid of half the cast, if yeah. I recall correctly. Yeah. And yeah, that's one of the things that was going on with that series where they were cutting corners and all that. And and I knew it because I had seen it so many times on Betamax. Like, I, I surprised I didn't wear out that tape. 
Um, but yeah, um, yeah, it's interesting to know there's the action scenes, like some of them are really good. Some of them are better than others. I think when they uh, break into the water plant and by the way, they reused a special effects shot of a bridge getting torn down. Yeah, from, I noticed that. Yeah, from um, one of my favorite movies as a kid, is a big influence on my novel coming out next year, Force 10 from Navarone, starring uh, young Harrison Ford um, in the sequel to Guns of Navarone from the 50s. And um, because that was also a movie I had on tape on Betamax, um that i watched a bunch of times because it was a young harrison ford um i recognized that and always knew i was like hey they it was weird as i didn't know that was a thing when you just take special effects from other things well but, no what, what surprised me was that they showed a clip of them releasing the water and it's destroying a bridge it's like and i guess they were thinking that maybe we wouldn't have noticed that on our low resolution tvs at the time but i just seeing it on my yeah, way to destroy television. a bridge yeah yeah no we're gonna be destroying a road and it's just like wow okay yeah um yeah that is interesting i hadn't hadn't really thought about that um all right so let's talk a little bit about the um the uh ancillary stuff uh, the expanded all, universe the expanded universe v was the first time i really delve into an expanded universe this particular copy was one of the first books I read on my own from start to finish uh, besides the, well, I think now Issa and I have talked about the Isaac Asimov Lucky Star books. Um, yeah, and the Lucky Star books, I started, my mom started reading those to me and I transitioned to finishing them on my own. And, uh, but V was second. I went out and got this even though I was watching it all the time, I think one of the reasons why I could read it so fast is because I knew what everybody looked like when I was a kid. Um, I know also Alan Dean Foster's Aliens um, novel novelization was big for me. Um, and, but one of the big things was quickly after the final battle was the release of East Coast Crisis. And this was a big deal because East Coast Crisis was a resistance cell in New York. It paralleled the events um, you know, you get to see Donovan on the roof of the UN from another character's perspective who's there um, and tying it in to making the world bigger and more expansive was really, really cool. Um, and later, uh, Weinstein tried to connect the events of, and I think in, in a novel called Prisoners and Pawns, he brought those characters back and kind of tried to tie them into the events of the TV series. Um, which he said, and I read this somewhere that um, he's like, wow, the scripts that I was getting for the TV series were much better than what they actually made. Um, and so one of the things that as the TV series came out and was terrible, um, I was reading the books as they came out and the books were written by some respectable science fiction and tie-in authors, including the uh, Visitors and Ninjas book, The Alien Swordsman, which was actually written by um, a respectable horror writer, uh, SP, uh, I can't remember his name, but he, he was he was an uh, Asian American um, uh, By the way, writer. the last V book that was published, which I, never, which I haven't read and never owned, is uh, apparently, apparently also has an, yeah, is a ninja. Oh, SP Sautau? Yes, yes, SP Sautau, and he wrote 
some vampire novels and stuff that were really good um a very respectable writer and so the idea that um you know we got uh the venn diagram of 80s like things that are cool with ninjas and visitors was you know um you know alien swords master like when that came out like you're flying to walden books to get that um and like they had in the back of each v book they would have the little like thing saying which ones were coming they'd have the list so you could check off you know to make sure that you got them and then it would have the next two like this one death tide which ann crispin co-wrote with her editor um the most recent one was um the next one's coming were the Crivet experiment and the new england resistance and so they would do like texas run and they would do chicago conversion and they would do novels that that expanded and then there were a few with like donovan and the gang and the artwork would definitely be bottom of the barrel well it was in the photographs yeah. yeah yeah and um sometimes they would just take pictures from the series and slap them in the middle. And sometimes, and one time I know at least one time they had Donovan on it and I got really excited because I thought I was going to tie in and he was not in it at all. <laughs> he was on the cover. Um, and they did like 17 of them and they were very popular. And one thing that I remember when they, these were coming out and I was reading them every single time and going down and getting them is that at a certain point I was like, I knew the TV series sucked and I was preferring the books and had an understanding in my head where I would be telling kids at school, you got to read the books, man, because they're way cooler. And I probably came off as a total nerd telling people like, you got to read the books, man, because they'd say, oh, I love V. And I was the cool kid who read the books, right? The cool kid. Right. And uh but I know, Dowdy, you read a couple of them too, right? You yeah, had... I, 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 ha I had almost all of them too. And I remember, uh, I think it's the Florida Experiment was was a Ham and Chris-centric book. Yeah, I remember loving that one for that reason. I remember Pursuit of Diana, which I think didn't that adapt. It bridged the TV series and... Um... Yeah, and I liked it. Anytime, like you, I had an easy time with those books as a kid because you could kind of picture the actors uh you know as the characters and yeah i liked anything like that that was either um an opportunity to spend more time with character side characters you really liked like a ham and chris centric book yeah. and like you said bridge bridge a gap like um pursuit of diana did and yeah and those sort of parallel stories new england resistance east coast crisis uh again it really the books and to a lesser extent the dc short-lived DC comic series really opened up my mind to you know expanded universe material and also uh kind of the heartbreak of when things did contradict and you know how uh stuff would be kind of lesser lesser canon and greater canon and and things like that that would carry into adulthood of following along with all this stuff nowadays and um I will say for uh, and I know I touched on second generation already a little bit, but um, this novel takes place in uh, about 30 years after the events of um, the miniseries and after the events of the great purge of 99, when the visitors like practically won 
um, and like took most of the water. And in this novel, very the human race is greatly decimated. And um, Donovan and Julie and they're they're all here, but um, and one of the things you'll like on the description in the back it says. Hiding their reptilian nature beneath false skin, the visitors have brought many benefits to humankind and secured a majority of the people into believing, are you ready? The big lie that they are the saviors of Earth. In 2008, that's how it was described on the back of the book. The big lie. But in truth, they are draining our oceans and subjugating our people. A small but determined human resistance has fought them for more than 20 years. And one of the things that's that is really cool about this is that it sets up showing Julie and Donovan and some of the characters from the original miniseries as being 20 year vets of this conflict. And so it is worth reading. Um, I'm not sure that I prefer it to my headcanon of the final battle existing. Um, but uh, yeah, there is that. And so the last thing is, is that he did this trying to, I think the 2008 thing with the second generation was he had, he had tried to reboot V many times and lost control and knew that the ABC reboot was coming. And part of him doing this was to try and get control of his IP back by like, you know, doing it in this way. And if you read his website, he was still under the idea that he could make a movie of the second generation as a sequel. And every time Mark Singer was at a Comic-Con, you know, in that era, it was like, yeah, I'm talking to Kenneth Johnson, you know, about it. So now, um, Juan, you want to tell us why you why you actually liked the reboot of in 2009? I'll defend the reboot because I think they got rid of all the things that I hated about the original series. I mean, they weren't after our water. They were after, they seem to be after our genetics, if I remember it correctly. So, so I, I get, I think that was a little bit more acceptable. And I, and I think, and also I did like, uh, I'm a big fan. It's of Elizabeth Mitchell, uh, who, who later went on to the expanse and also was on Lost. So, and I think she was a good lead character for that. And I kind of, I, it it just seemed to work. It it took, as I said, it just took out all the stuff I didn't like about the original show. And it's and also I think this was a show that needed a plan. I mean, um, Joseph. I mean, the the bad thing about V the series is that it seems like you know they now have to come up with at least twenty ways a year for Diana to try to you know stop the resistance. I don't think they had an idea of doing a serialized story, which I think they were doing in the reboot. You know, at least they I think they had like arcs plan you know and how to you know how to not do you know how to avoid the problem and then they did get a second year so they made more episodes of this series than they did of the original series or at least close to it so well here's the thing you can do a resistance show and we have proof of that because we just saw andor right and but if, that's a planned series i mean they planned right. it out right but what I, I that's what they should have done in my opinion the reason why the v reboot is the most colossal misunderstanding is it doesn't have anything in its dna of the warning about fascism it doesn't have anything in its dna about the resistance to it that makes sense that builds and works 
in the same way. I know all these things are there in little bits and pieces. And then it totally focuses, at least my memory of it, it was very much focused on the visitors as being interesting, more interesting than the humans. The one thing that I thought was cool was the idea that there were sleeper that, that there were visitor sleeper agents already in our society. That was the one thing that I thought was smart. And the fact that they actually call the visitors bees on the show can that fuck made right sense. off. It can fuck right off all the way. <laughs> that was one of the worst things ever. And um, I, I, I thought that. the casting of the lady from Firefly, I don't know her name. I thought that was great casting. Marina Baccarin. If I'm yeah, pronouncing to, it right, to play the Diana role, and um, but the, she was great casting in that role, but the writing was terrible. The CGI mouths and just oh, the bad. digital sets were really bad. That, that's what I was going to say. Is I I actually did enjoy the show, you know, because I didn't really remember about V all that much, right? I I had some memories of it, but I ended up enjoying. You didn't the, have it memorized like some of us, exactly. Yeah, but I I, I basically enjoyed it, but. You know, the original series, like if you could watch, if you could watch your Betamax versions of it, it probably looks pretty good. Um, where you watch it now on a on a big screen, you're like, okay, that's a matte painting. Um, I love a good matte painting. But then there's some there's some janky special effects here and there. But the the V reboot series looks much worse because of the use of the digital sets. I don't remember that. I mean, it didn't come off. And I what are the reasons just that I watch feel- a single clip from it yeah. like I did just last night? Because mm-hmm. all I had to do, bad. I didn't remember it at all. And I watched one clip from it and all my hatred came flowing back and every I, my memory of it. It looks more back. dated to its time, I would yeah. say, than the original miniseries looks at its time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know about that. I mean, the thing is, it's the original show, I agree as, as good as it is, it is an 80s show. And in yeah, fact, but practical it? effects hold up better. And, and, it, and it, not that it was all practical, but... Yeah. Well, the, the, uh, the flying scenes, like whenever the ships are flying in the original V miniseries, is very early 80s television. It looks mm-hmm. just like when the greatest American hero is flying or you know, <laughs> yeah. anything on TV was flying. Um, you know, and you it quickly watching it now is kind of silly. Like there's that one scene where they do the the Star Wars homage where they've got like the backward facing gunner on the mm-hmm. on the shuttle that's oh it's terrible. Just like, oh my god, this is painful. Yeah, I thought that was a looking that again, I thought it was exciting when I first saw it, but then I realized but then again I might have gotten it confused when Ham Tyler actually was in the back of a of a of a sky fighter and you know they were trying to get away and he was doing the back gunner. But the one in the miniseries was so slow. I mean, I'm kind of surprised how slow paced that was. Uh, I don't yeah, know if they made to it. To me, the differences are are like original trilogy versus prequel trilogy in terms of yeah, effects. Exactly. There's a lot of goofy stuff in the original trilogy uh, that we just sort of overlook uh, that's dated to its time. Whereas the stuff that dates the prequels to the 90s and early 2000s, I think it's more akin to what kind of ruins the uh the v reboot to me but i i think and 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 i'm probably going to be in trouble for this the thing is i think in the original show we kind of forgot after time what v stood for and i think people just assume it was the visitors anyway so i think that that's what it did in but and i'm well, sorry it was great that it worked in both both you know in terms of victory and visitors but mm-hmm. without ever saying the v's I, I, but that didn't bother me when they did the reboot. I'm going, okay, that makes sense because people probably are not going to re- because 
I barely remembered when the show, when the weekly series was on, you know, they, you know, you kind of thought, oh, it's just visitors. I Although think I'm one of the s- greatest hurdles that the reboot had and didn't really solve successfully was one, one of the biggest, you know, I mean, the whole reveal of lizard people, the fact that lizard people even are such a part of pop culture, <laughs> you know, at post V. Uh, but that being right, like a big, you know, Michael Jackson moonlighting, on, uh, moonwalking on an award show type water cooler moment of did you see that and the sinister, you know, nature of what they were doing here and all of that sort of stuff. You were never going to have that again <laughs> in a reboot. So you really had to figure out what could be a similar sort of level of excitement or maybe subverting our expectations or i mean that was always going to be hard to pull off and i think that the reboot really failed i am not going to go into this but the one thing that i very deeply but the one thing i owe the reboot for is that it made me so mad that i wrote an entire novel because of the V reboot pissed me off so bad. You wrote a novel out of spite. <laughs> I kind of did because um, I was so, I had so many ideas about the way you would reboot V. And I looked back and I know Ryan and I talked about it a lot online around the time of the Battlestar Galactica reboot. Because we would, he and I, Ryan and I would constantly talk on message through Facebook or whatever during that era about how NBC needed to do a reboot of V that was as dark and gritty as Battlestar Galactica and do a resistance show. We talked about it all the time. So when the reboot happened and it- and, dar- and dark and gritty, even in terms of just the look, right? Like the retro future with the Battlestar reimagining, they did this, you know, they had like corded telephones on the ship and, you know, stuff, practical stuff that, um, that, that oddly doesn't date it in the way that the like weightless kind of digital feel of the V reboot does. Well, really quickly on the, on the V for victory, just to tie this into the passing of Pele, um, victory V for victory was a very common word in the eighties when that came out, you know, we just had the Pele movie victory, um and uh and so i think it was it made more sense back then i feel like the word victory wasn't used in the same way more recently you know what i mean like it was like like you know like victory days were like a thing and like i guess they still technically are but you don't really hear about them anymore so i think the word just lost its meaning from between the 80s and the 2000s so. although while we're still talking about the reboot there was one attempted reboot and i i, I think it was either published in starlog joe straczynski at some point and i think this was before babylon 5 actually did a proposal for bringing back V, and I think he wrote a pilot script, which only had Ham Tyler. I believe, if I recall correctly, Donovan was a POW. Julie had to go underground. I forgot what happened to everybody else, and he had killed off Elizabeth, uh, which I think uh, brought that on, and it, and tried to focus on, uh, and then the pilot. I don't know if Ham survived the pilot or not, but he was the famed focal character of the pilot, so he put that proposal but obviously it didn't go anywhere but he did write kind of a proposal on how to bring the show back right well and and i think you know well what i was what what happened and i i want to clarify for the 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 novel that 
I wanted to write, like I basically took all the ideas that I thought that they should do in a V reboot and tried to create a different story with very different setups. But, um, and one day I, I have finished writing the first book, but I have five books planned. And one day I hope that that will become my science fiction, um, my grand epic, <laughs> but, um, but, and I will owe how much I hated the V reboot for having, for feeling like I needed to write that. And so there, there is that. Um, and I, I will say with the thing with the reboot that they, I think Downey is right. You can't recreate those moments. So you had to do other things. You had to do other things. And one of the ways, and yeah, some of the, when I met Gritty, one of the things that I thought for Gritty was to do all the things that Andor is doing now, which is like have resistance characters that, shoot people to keep information from getting out to have um ideals slipping away to have um you know the resistance fighters be equally as bad as the visitors at times you know and to see it as a slow progression you know just the same way you saw jimmy mcgill become saul goodman over six seasons like you have an opportunity with the way television is now to to tell a fascism warning story react to january 6th and the maga movement and tell a, a, a progressive resistance story in in an, in an alien way but you know instead you're gonna be like we have cultists who love diana and have mouths that look like venom no that doesn't work in my opinion it is just it it it, it misses all the points, all of them. Every point that the show existed to make, it missed all of them. It was, you know. We need to put you in the bliss. <laughs> right. Well, or di- put me in a conversion chamber to make to say, yes, the video <laughs> reboot was great. And I'm writing with my left hand now. Um, all right. On that note, um, guys, we've been talking for a long time. So, um I guess, you know, like, maybe we should have said this at the beginning, but um, to sum up this discussion, like, you know, um, like, I was trying to convince, I wanted to, well, at one point, you know, I couldn't get, Sarah Lynn Mishner was supposed to be on this panel, and she wasn't able to do that this weekend, who's one of my regulars on my Star Trek episodes. And it's too bad that she wasn't here because I wanted somebody who didn't grow up on V to get their opinion of like how they felt about it. And, um, and so I'm really sorry that she wasn't able to be here. And uh, I did try, I invited many younger science fiction women who are science fiction authors and stuff, but like trying to get them to commit to watching the show was actually harder than you would imagine. (laughs) um because it's so old and people are just like oh no but you know i think this show has a lot to tell people so like you know what is the the thing that we that we that everybody thinks v means now right like and to kind of sum up our feelings on this um starting with with uh downey and then we'll go around in terms of what it means now, yeah, I think it is a, an evergreen tale of uh, Leica. It 
it can't happen here. And I use that as a title uh, for its sort of general meaning since I haven't actually read that book. But I think that it it does have a lot to say about contemporary society uh, as it did at the time, as Issa pointed out, when World War II was still very new and, and fresh in the consciousness and has continued to the way that it, uh, you know, and as political cycles move forward, it has a lot to say about uh, us as a people. And um, I think in that way, it's great, you know, and much like a Star Wars, if you're sharing it with younger generations, there's a certain amount of, you know, explaining uh, budgets and uh, creative struggles and television versus film and all these sort of caveats that you have to kind of keep in mind seeing it for the first time from a purely story perspective and performances and characters and all that sort of thing. It, you know, it holds up. It's great. Isa. I also think it holds up really well, although I do wonder, I, I do wonder what, uh, like I was, I was trying to get my daughter to watch it with me, who's 14. And it was just, you know, I don't even think I got out the words, hey, do you want to watch this when she was already saying no. Like she's pretty much learned that anything that's really old, she isn't going to enjoy, you know, even, I mean, you know, I made her watch Star Wars and stuff and she liked that fine. Star Wars feels a little more timeless because it's not set on earth, you know? um there's it gives it a little something extra it is so 80s like it's really hard to divorce how 80s v is from v because it is so 80s and so you know if you uh you know it's a great story i love it for me it will always be one of my favorite things ever on television but i i don't know how i was really curious to hear what sarah thought of it or what other younger people think of it um but yeah, I, I think I think there is as an academic exercise in storytelling, writing, and uh, just what the world was like in the 1980s. I think it's it's always going to be fantastic. Like I could see, I, I feel like there's a lot to learn from it, uh, just culturally, and will be for a very long time. And also, just again, I'm going to mention the storytelling again. It's just it's so fantastic. It does really really good world building in a very short amount of time. It's very impressive. Yeah, and I think the writing is 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 what, and its connection that it can happen here is what's really important about it. Seth, yeah, I'm not sure what I have to add to to what Ryan and Issa said. Um, you know, it really does hold up well in terms of the storytelling. Sure, dated effects, it's that's fine. Um, but like you suggested, David, I'm I'm totally going to propose this as a, a take me to your reader episode. I'm going to get some some flack on that one for saying it's not directly adapted, but knowing the, the intent of uh, Johnson, right? Um, yeah. Johnson. Yeah. Um, I, I think is a, is an interesting factor there. And, um, I, yeah, and I would be curious to because, crew talk about it too. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of my co-hosts is eight years younger than me. And so, um, he did not grow up with it. I'm sure it's possible he's seen it, but I I'd be interested to get that. Uh, that feedback from somebody who didn't grow up with it, what they think of it, um, at least for the the V miniseries. Because, you know, to me, looking back on it now, the original V miniseries definitely had something to say. V, the final battle, was kind of obligatory sequel, um, the, the, the way I look at it. I still remember enjoying it a ton. I watch it now and I'm like, yeah, the action scenes are boring. Um, 
you know, it's just people doing the Arnold Schwarzenegger wave a gun in the general direction, plus a bunch of stormtrooper aiming from the the visitors. Yeah. Um, and 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 Kirk Fu, as Dave pointed out, and Kirk Fu, definitely, yeah. The the hand to hand fighting was really something. Um, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it, it's definitely something that's worth watching and. I'd be curious to see somebody try to reboot this in a, in a pretty faithful way and see how that would go. Yeah. Um, I think there's three people here that would love to take that. Job. <laughs> um, just saying, just, you know, putting that out there. Yeah. Um, but uh, as far as um, yeah, take me to your reader. I think you guys ought to do it. And I, I said it for a reason, but as a fan of your podcast, too. Yeah. so um, and uh uh, I highly recommend everyone listen to your Soylent Green episode. This was okay. a watermark on your on your podcast. We had to do it this year. Still, it's set in 2022. Hey, you still owe me an appearance because I'm supposed to come on to talk about Stir of Echoes, and I'm going to hold okay. you to that at some point. All right, all right. Because I love, I think that's an adaptation that needs to be talked about. Juan? Uh, I would say that it's definitely of its time, and I don't think it can escape that. I, I still do do think it has something to say i i have to politely disagree with seth i don't think the final battle was the obligatory well i it was i think it was a necessary sequel because at least i don't know if they had the series or i think they had the series planned because i realized when they built the bridge set goes hmm that looks like a standing set they could use future but at least it showed that fascists can be beaten and i don't think if you'd ended it I, I don't know if, he, if it hadn't had that conclusive victory in V, the final battle, uh, or at least apparently decisive victory. You, I don't think that would have been a good thing. It might have been forgotten because, you know, oh, it's like got this depressing ending. We don't know if we're ever going to be free or not unless they wrote a novel about it or not. So well, I think but that would be more more like real life if if it ended with, you know, hey, we got to keep fighting. Someone may never come to help us. Yeah, if I'm, if I'm recommending this, if I'm recommending this to a younger person, I would say watch the V miniseries and don't watch Final Battle. Yeah, I do then again, their lift. It's like, what's going to happen? I mean, I, I'm kind of like that person. I like, I like conclusions. I, I do like ambiguous endings, but at the mm -hmm. same time, I think if you've got a decent conclusion, and yeah. I think the the Final Battle did ah. at least have a decent conclusion, and maybe that's where they should have ended it or at least if they were going to do it they should have stuck to johnson's plan of like doing a special once a month or if you're going to do a series like that you got to plan it out because you guess and, and this is a common thing in 80s well in 80s animation television because you had to come up with about uh 50 plots on how cobra was going to take over the earth every week or every you know every every year right. so I, I you, you got to plan that out so it doesn't become repetitious or try to make my, it my favorite was when they started a band with mind control music that Old was slither oh. you'll Old be joining slither. us soon yep so uh, you got to plan that up but i think it's of its time and obviously yeah, yeah. I, i'd love to hear seth's take on it on his show yeah i do wonder what the what the legacy would have been without both series if, if it needed them both to kind of cement it i don't know if it had just been the one, maybe it would have been just like some diehards like like David and Ryan. <laughs> hey, now, I think we were all there. You know, you were playing V as a kid, too. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. On that note, uh, everybody, I think we've talked V to death. Uh, and uh, I definitely appreciate everybody taking some time for the 100th episode to talk about. Um, yeah, V, obviously, I, I, I can say 
all the dialogue as it's coming because I watched it so much as a kid. And, um, you know, it, it, there's very few properties that mean more to me, um, in my childhood. And I think are actually formative to me as a reader because of the, the books actually were, were the first books that I really got into. And the fact that this actual paperback, you can see how worn it is, whatever has traveled with me everywhere I have gone. Um, you know, since I was a kid, uh, it, it, it means something. And, um, yeah, and I really, and I actually do recommend that people read the novels too. Like, um, they're, they're really worth it. And Crispin was, she also wrote a couple of Han Solo novels that are really good too. Um, before she passed, she, she could really write Italian novel. Um, and, but yeah, Yesterday's Son, I don't know if you guys remember the episode of Star Trek where Spock and McCoy go in the library. All our yesterdays. All our yesterdays. And they go back in time. Um, her novel is about Spock discovering that there's a guy with pointed ears on a cave painting on that planet and has to use the Guardian of Forever to go back and find his son in the past. Um and then, uh, but there's also Romulans involved. It's great. It is one of, it's top tier. It's not Federation good, which is the greatest Star Trek tie-in novel of all time. Oh my God, you too? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Seth and I did a whole podcast about Federation. About Oh, I got to find that. I loved mm-hmm. that when it came out. Yeah. And um, uh, Federation is the uh, much better than Generations um tie together of the original series and tng crew and also a sequel to a not great episode of tos as well um and has the best star trek villain besides khan in that and federation so i I will say this yeah just uh, ac crispin was a a grandmaster by the organization of tie-ins which actually put out an award uh Oh God, I'm blanking out an award and a friend of mine recently got nominated for it. They, they actually have a tie-in award, which is actually given out at Comic-Con, although it's not as well organized as the Hugos, because as I said, there's a friend of mine who's a writer in Tampa and he didn't find out about it until like two weeks or a month before the ceremony and he couldn't. They have it at Comic-Con actually, the ceremony. So. Yeah, but he but they didn't tell him he was nominated for his for his uh, Thor novel, uh, well Asgard novel, and they didn't tell him. I mean, had they told him, he might have actually tried to go and maybe go to the <laughs> award ceremony. He didn't win. Yeah, but... and so, but to tie it back in, uh, sorry, unintended. AC Crispin did um, do incredible work with these books, and um, East Coast Crisis. If not, if none other, this is the one. This is the one to read to um that coming off of our experience of rewatching the shows if you went and read east coast crisis right now it would be totally worth it because you have it fresh in your head um all right so let's wrap things up let's uh so tell everybody uh how they can find you um i know for a fact that isa and ryan will be coming back soon for bad batch season two we're gonna have them we're making isa watch a bunch of uh star wars cartoons here in the near future um isa's also come you're coming back first for prodigy for star trek prodigy soon and um seth uh i'm always looking for ways for us to work together again um but i would love and i'm inviting myself 
Again, you made the invite first, but I I'm did. reminding yeah. you <laughs> that I want to do Stir of Echoes and Take Me to Your Reader because Richard Matheson's. It's funny when that book, when that, when uh, sick, when the movie came out of Stir of Echoes, everyone said it was a ripoff of Sixth Sense, but Richard Matheson wrote the novel in 1958. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the reason I went to see the movie because some I found out it was a ma- based on a Matheson novel. Yeah. It's so funny that people think that it's uh well, but now Shyamalan is uh Kevin Bacon wasn't enough for you. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm a big Kevin Bacon fan actually, but and now yeah. Shyamalan we have the issue of him like not giving uh, authors credit for the books that he's adapting with Paul Tremblay's Cabin at the End of the World, which absolutely no one knows was based on a novel because Shyamalan is burying the fact that it's based on a novel, including changing the title to The Terrible Knock at the Door. Um, but no, it's based on a novel. Just putting that out there. Um, and a great novel. Uh, so, uh, Ryan, how can folks find you and your work? Turn off mute to answer that question. Uh, you can go to ryanjdowney.com and, uh, find everything there. Yeah. And uh, if he won't say it, he's a host of a Metallica podcast, Speak and Destroy. I do, which, um, got episodes in the bank for 2023 just gotta get them edited and out there awesome uh looking forward to that uh also does a podcast called no prize from god which is great and um seth heasley you are the host of two podcasts as well yeah he goes there uh by the way if you want to hear more of david we have two episodes one on city by clifford simak and another on the disposition way station by clifford simak Oh right, you you it, you you mentioned city, but it's about way station. That's right. Sorry, <laughs> you'd think I would know. <laughs> and then we did uh, uh, Ursula wins the dispossessed. Yeah, which yeah. is like the high water mark for the podcast. It's a Thank tremendous you, episode, and that's all down to David. So, um, and then uh, take me to your reader, like we mentioned as well. The best place to find me is just uh, at Hugo's podcast. That's where I do most of my tweeting. Uh, Isa. Uh, no one really wants to find me, but if they want to, they'll find a way. Um, I just want to congratulate you on 100 episodes. That's a lot of freaking episodes. Good job. <laughs> Thank you, Hisa. Juan. Uh, you can find me on Rainbow War at 70, Rainbow War 71 at Twitter. Also at Mastodon, I'm on the Wandering Shop uh, server there, whatever they call it there. Also, uh, Rainbow Warrior 71 at WordPress dot com is my blog if i'm remembering the blog site correctly and if you ever i will put this challenge out to you and you can edit it out if it's if it's inappropriate if you decide to do a way of water paddle i'll be the skeptic i don't love it i believe as much as you do i love it but not as much isa loves way of water (laughs) as much as i do i've seen it i've seen only seen it twice so far but I, i loved it yeah I'm tempted to see it twice in SD just to see because my friends saw it and they liked it. And I'm kind of surprised because I felt you at least need to see it in 3D. I would say the 3D version is definitely better than the non-3D version. I'm going to check out some different types of uh, screenings in the future. But so far, I've seen the IMAX 3D and the Dolby 2D. Well, it's funny you should mention that, one because people have accused me of being on the payroll for James Cameron because of how much I've defended uh avatar the way of water um but which is ridiculous since he doesn't pay people (laughs) oh actually i shouldn't say that i shouldn't say that the thing is i joke around harlan ellison sued him for for credit on terminator and it got ugly 
Yeah. And um, sued him successfully, we should say. No, I think they settled out of court. So yeah, I don't I'm know saying, if that's... He got, he got his. And I yeah. believe he appears in the credits now. Even Yes, acknowledgement yes. to the works of Har- Harlan Ellison. Doesn't acknowledge the man, just the works. <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, I'm not actually a fan of that lawsuit, even uh, as much people would think that I'd take the uh, prose writer's side. But um, I actually I think the worst lawsuit is uh, John Carpenter's um, suing uh, Luke Besson over lockup, the um, saying that it ripped off the unmade Escape from New York uh, third movie in the trilogy. And it was he had no way of ever seeing it, but somehow he ripped it off because it wasn't even made. Um, and that uh, just because he had plans to make a Snake Plissken in space sequel. Uh, I think some of those lawsuits are silly, but on that note, um, the uh, I, I, don't, I don't think I would do the Avatar debate because I find most people who want to debate Avatar have never even seen it. So, you know. <laughs> Majority of the people who complain about it and argue about it have never actually seen it, and they just are also. It's, it's going to be like the biggest movie of all time, probably. So it's kind of it doesn't need too. our help. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. On that note, everybody, a hundred uh, episode one hundred is congratulations. Whoop, whoop. Thank Congrats. you. Hundred episodes. Yeah. And um, by the way, for those if you made it this far, episodes one hundred one and one hundred two are already in the bank. 101 is a discussion of Barry Malzberg's Galaxies, which is a underrated science fiction freakout novel from 1974 and a very meta book with James Reich and uh, uh, Professor David Harlan Wilson. And then episode 102 is with Steve Davidson, who is the owner of Amazing Stories magazine. And just his story of how he got the rights to Amazing Stories is worth listening to the episode alone but it's covering a book called Sense of Wonder, which is about the short story contest that Amazing Stories ran in 1926 and 1929. So it's all about science fiction written in the 1920s, which is very, very fascinating. So um, I highly recommend that episode 102 is already recorded and hopefully we'll see you folks there. Thanks for joining us and definitely tell people to watch V, read V and um, yeah. So thanks for joining us. Remember, the visitors are our friends. <laughs> Absolutely the best way to end. Pray te nama. Pray te nama, Downey. <laughs> <laughs>